Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, my name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and we are here at session number 118 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings as we prepare to continue making progress through the poem. The A. Arendel was a Mariner poem. We got three stanzas into it last week. That was excellent progress. And uh, I'm excited uh, to continue. We're going <clears> to... <throat> we're going we're gonna to totally speed up as we go through the poem. No, I almost said that with a straight face, but, 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 but for real. Like, we have a grasp on the, you know, the shape of things, right? We know what to expect as far as the structure of the poem goes. Uh, so we'll be, uh, we'll be moving forward and it's going to be great. Um, let me just, uh, a couple quick announcements. First of all, we had new, our first ever New England moot this past weekend, uh, down in Amherst, Massachusetts. That was really great. I see, uh, 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 Tamara was here, uh, 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 boldly staying up there, Tamara, and, uh, uh, great to meet you. Got to sit next to Tamara at the, uh, at the pub on, uh, on Saturday night, and we got to chat for a bit. Uh, really good. Uh, I got, I got to meet Flamifer. Uh, Flamifer and I were examining Robert Frost manuscripts on, uh, on, uh, Saturday afternoon. We had a really fun time puzzling through. There was a, this is really tantalizing bit, uh, in the last stanza of his really famous poem, like right before the lines in Miles to Go Before I Sleep and Miles to Go Before I Sleep. He had originally written a third line, crossed it out, wrote a new line above that, crossed that out, and then wrote and Miles to Go Before I Sleep and Miles to Go Before I Sleep. So Flamifer and I were sitting there like, uh, oh gosh, I don't even know how long we sat there trying to puzzle out like what the, you know, trying to read his handwriting, which had been crossed out, right, underneath the crossouts. And in fact, there was the one, the last word in the line was clearly not only crossed out, but it was, there was a, there was another word which was faintly erased and then overwritten and then crossed out, right? So we were trying to, we we're trying to figure out, uh, we were trying to, you know, we were kind of playing Christopher Tolkien there and working out, uh, the creative process for Frost in that last, uh, uh, in that last stand. It was really fun. Anyway, we had, we had a great time. Um, that was just like the preamble. The mood itself on Sunday was, uh, was fantastic. Really, really wonderful, uh, 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 things from, from lots of different people. We had a really great variety of presentations, some scholarly presentations, some creative presentations of different kinds. Uh, we had somebody who was, uh, uh, reading, um, um, Somebody who read, uh, uh, Kay Ben, Kay Ben Abraham read the first, uh, part of the first chapter of her new book. We had, uh, somebody showing us the, this really awesome, uh, Tolkien quilt that she was making. She was passing around parts of her quilt. She made this really cool, uh, like, uh, heavily symbolic Tolkien, uh, quilt and was walking us through it. Really, really neat stuff. Um, uh, as well as some philology talks. And I gave a talk on, uh, Tolkien's, what I think, I estimate, anyway, I don't have data on this, but I estimate this to be Tolkien's second least read work ever, um, which is um, Mr. Bliss, uh, <laughs> read only slightly more often than Finn and Hengist. Um, but uh, yeah, Tamara, exactly, the Badger's presentation, yeah, a, a presentation on like trends in the depiction of badgers in uh british children's literature it was re it was really cool uh, anyway lots of really fun stuff um so uh uh anyway so we, we had a we had a great time uh just the day before yesterday uh at uh, uh new england moot and if you are anywhere near the middle of the country, I encourage you to see if you could join us for Middle Moot, because that's coming up now the weekend after next. So that's our next regional moot. 
Um, we're going to be in Waterloo, Iowa. Still time to register for that. If you haven't registered yet, I strongly encourage you to do so. Um, we're going to have a great crowd. Ted Naismith is going to be there, the, the famous Tolkien artist. Uh, always wonderful to hear Ted talk about his work, and we, we're going to get a really great chance to do some sort of protracted Q&A uh, with Ted. I'm looking forward to that, and uh, uh, I'm going to be sort of moderating that and look forward to uh, 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 enjoying that with uh, those of you who are going to be able to be there. Um, anyway, so uh, so Middle Moot is going to be great. And of course, don't forget, we are in the middle of our fall fundraising campaign as well, um, which means a couple different things. The first thing that it means, of course, uh, is that it's time for me to remind you uh, to, uh, uh, if you possibly can, uh, give a fully tax deductible donation to Signum University, uh, because... We really need and appreciate your support. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization which is really trying to do uh, big things in higher education to really help as many people as we can. Uh, and we've got uh, some exciting new plans that I'm looking forward to telling you about, which leads me to uh, my... Second thing, the second thing that the uh, fall fundraising campaign means, which which means a couple special events that are coming up. So first, I wanted to emphasize next Monday, the 7th of October, I'm going to be doing my State of the University address, uh, where I'm going to be talking about the directions that we're going in Signum University, the next steps, our next adventure uh, at Signum University. Some really, really big stuff. Where is uh, Signum looking to go down the road? What are, what, uh, what, um, are the, the next steps that we're taking in growing and expanding Signum? So this is, a, this is kind of a big deal. And I'm going to be talking about that next Monday night, as I said, October 7th. But before that, on October 5th, this coming Saturday, I'm going to be doing my annual Lotro Marathon. So I'm going to be back with Wigand and Minas Tirith. And we're gonna go. I'm gonna. I'm gonna meet Hanburi Han, and uh, we're gonna. Uh, we're gonna. We're gonna uh, move ahead. I'm hoping to get Wigand all the way up to. I don't think we'll get all the way through, but right up to <clears throat> the uh, uh, the battle of Pelennor Field. So uh, that's my uh, that's my goal. Lots of really great uh, Gondor quests, uh, quest lines, and stuff uh, that are in store for me. I understand. I've never done uh, uh, this before. Uh, so again, when you're watching me doing Wigan, you're watching me, uh, uh, cause Wigan is my highest character. He's level hundred now. Uh, so everything I'm doing with Wigan is stuff I've never seen before. So, uh, uh, so that'll be a lot of fun. So again, that's Saturday, October 5th, starting at noon Eastern time and going until I finish. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly when that's going to be. Um, very good. Yes, exactly. I, Druid's Fire, I, I count on Ethelod to, uh, remind me to stay focused. Wigan is, Wigan is reasonably disciplined, uh, uh, cause it's, it's, it, it's a comfort knowing that he has Grifflet coming slowly along behind him. Um, though, of course, Grifflet is constantly year by year threatening to catch Wigan up, of course. <laughs> but anyway, he's still coming along behind. Um, anyway, so the last thing I wanted to emphasize uh, in relationship to the fundraising campaign, um, we are doing uh, uh, an asynchronous drawing like we did last year, if you were around with us last year. So everyone who has made a donation uh, to, Signum, to Signum University 
uh, is eligible to, to, to join our drawing, uh, on the, on the finale of our, uh, uh, the, the finale event of our campaign, which is going to be on the 19th of October, Saturday, the 19th of October. Um, we're going to, um, I'm going to do a drawing and I'm going to, I'm going to draw three winners and each of our winners is going to receive an anytime audit, uh, 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 class. So that means you get the uh, full access to the, to the lecture materials of any course in the Signum catalog that you choose. And, uh, the grand prize winner will also get a special exploring the Lord of the Rings, uh, 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 thing. So you can choose, you can either choose the field trip of your choice. You can accompany me on the field trip and we can go to wherever you want to go, uh, to look at whatever you want to look at in our field trip. Or if you wanted to discuss, to suggest a, a particular discussion topic, you could, you could suggest a discussion topic for the day. Um, <clears throat> there's, you know, we, we, I, we can, we can discuss, you know, so you'll be able to uh, uh, have some input into sort of crafting a custom uh, session. So, ah, oh, yes, Bruner, you uh, uh, you won an anytime audit last weekend. Awesome, yeah, good, yeah, we gave a couple away last weekend, so that's great. Um, excellent. So, all you have to do again: make a donation of any size to Signum University, and then send an email to donate at signumu.org. And just mention that you want to enter the Exploring the Lord of the Rings drawing. If you, uh, th- if you are a monthly donor, like if you already have a monthly donation going on, uh, you're, you're, that, that counts, uh, and you are eligible to enter there. If you watch multiple broadcasts, you do need to choose between them, uh, which one, wh- which drawing you want to enter. But, uh, you know, you can kind of choose depending on, uh, which grand prize you really want to, uh, uh, to, to line up for there. Um, anyway, all right. So that's, um, that's the plan. Oh, good. And I see that Moobot has, uh, put up the, uh, uh, the donate link there in the Twitch chat. That's excellent. That's excellent. Okay. Cool. So then let us return. Um, one quick, uh, note and query here before it's note and or query, uh, before we, continue forward here. And this actually, I was really glad, Jim, uh, that you posted this one. Um, is a, a question about Bilbo and the ring. He says, in episode 113, Professor Olsen discussed Bilbo's ring-induced monologue, where he tells Frodo about how he had wanted to go back to the Shire and bring the ring to Rivendell himself to spare Frodo the burden and all when he first heard that the enemy wanted it. It was noted that this entirely occurred in the extreme absence of the ring. Bilbo was in Rivendell, and the ring was in Bag End with Frodo. How could the ring influence Bilbo over such a distance? I don't think the ring has to influence Bilbo over distance. It exerts its influence over time, so to speak. Possessing the ring changes you in all sorts of ways, despite keeping your age steady. Slow to evil, Gandalf says. Uh, if the ring-bearer takes the ring in a spirit of pity, like Bilbo did. But slow is not... Not at all. I think the ring is still in Bilbo's head. It doesn't need to be physically present to the originator of his, to be the originator of his basic thought patterns because it has drilled them into him over the decades. Bilbo is damaged. Even he realizes that after the episode where he asks to see it. The ring's influence on both hobbits will last even after it is destroyed. That's why they, spoilers, sail west. Uh, Jim, I absolutely agree with you about this. And I was the, the primary reason that I was super glad, uh, that you brought this up, um, is because I, your question made it really clear to me that I like absolutely failed in communication there. Um, 
So I'm really, really glad you gave me an opportunity uh, to correct that. Uh, I absolutely agree with everything that you said. Um, I may have gotten so caught up in pointing out uh, that it was very significant that Bilbo was doing this, that I never got around to explaining why I, th- I thought it was so significant. Um, but so let me make it really clear. Um, the fact that this is so there is a sense in which this is a ring induced monologue. I would categorize it in that way loosely because it sounds exactly like the kinds of rationalizations that people make when they're under the influence of the ring, as we would say, or as we would have said in many other circumstances. And most of the time when that happens, it happens in the presence of the ring. Um, the reason I find this so significant is because it's not happening in the presence of the ring. And what I think, because again, Jim, you're absolutely right. I do not think that the ring could be directly influencing Bilbo over that distance. I don't think that he's like somehow like, you know, spiritually or psychically like feeling the ring calling to him over the miles like Jane Eyre. Like it's not, I don't think that that's what's happening at all. And that's the point, right? The point is that this passage, I think, has a, has a lot of bear. So there, there are two conclusions that I would draw. One, Jim, is the one that you've already drawn, right? Um, that this is clear evidence of the, the kind of damage, as you say, that the ring has done to Bilbo's soul. Um, he, his tendency to think in this way, uh, is evidence of that harm, of that damage, not, um, you know, it's not, uh, uh, evidence that the ring is influencing him at that point. And here then is the second conclusion that I would draw or suggest. And that is, if this ring induced monologue is not caused by the presence of the ring, that is by the ring acting on him directly from proximity, um, maybe, maybe the others aren't either, right? Um, the, to me, it bears on the question of the question, you know, one of the big questions that we've been asking, one of our longitudinal questions here as we're studying through, which is how does the ring operate? How conscious is the ring? How, um, how much can we, uh, you know, uh, how fair is it for us to conclude that the um that the ring is is being active uh in its uh in its influence of others it's very natural i think that conclusion is very natural that you know boromir is being driven by the ring that's right there right that it's that the ring has an impact a lot of us tend to think as we know you know i mean that we've talked about this that the ring is is acting almost telepathically, right? Like it's communicating, like it's sort of psychically whispering in the ears of people nearby, right? Trying to corrupt them. Um, some, if we don't think about it that way, then we might possibly think of it as something like, um, radioactivity, right? Um, like it's, uh, it is, uh, you know, again, like if, when you're near it, it is corrupting you. It is having an impact on you, whether you know it or not. It might, you know, now, of course, like a piece of radioactive material is not conscious 
It's not deliberate in what it's doing, but it has an impact on you. And the further away you are from it, the safer you're going to be. Right. Again, that's, I think that's one way that people often think about the ring. And it's easy to think that way because the vast majority of the time it's people who are near. So when we see Gollum, right, having his ring induced monologue in the two towers, when we see Boromir have his ring induced monologue uh, at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, Again, it's these are all people who are right there um, confronted by the ring, and it's easy to imagine them being tempted by the ring, right? But I think this passage, I just, you know, this one passage doesn't disprove that entire concept or anything, but it is a very important piece of counter evidence, I think. It does show us that the way this this way of thinking about the ring that people are showing this 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 thing that I call, have called, you know, a ring induced monologue. Um, it might be in a sense ring induced, but perhaps not so directly, right? Um, that it's not just simply kind of a byproduct of the presence of the ring or something directly stimulated by the ring. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good. Yeah. Arden Crayon points out that at the Council of Elrond, it, it, it will be speculated that the ring might still pose a threat, even if it were thrown into the depths of the sea. And Matt points out that the same thing to a lesser degree is happening to Saruman. He is infected through the study of ring lore, and he's never even been in the presence of the one. Yeah, exactly. That is, um, to some extent, to some extent, like... The evidence suggests the ring itself isn't exactly the problem, right? That is the people who are desiring. It's the desire of the ring uh, that is corrupting them. And certainly somebody like Bilbo, who has certainly been influenced, been damaged, uh, Jim, as you say, uh, by the ring, um, is certainly going to have that desire, right? But that desire itself, that desire that he retains, uh, that kind of orientation of his heart, right, towards desiring the ring, is going to lead him in this direction no matter what, right? Now, I don't doubt that the actual presence of the ring might am- might amplify it, right, might bring it out. Um, would it be safe for Bilbo to take it? Would it harm him more? Well, Gandalf seems to suggest, I think, that it might, that it would. I mean, remember, he uh, he said to Frodo back in Chapter 2 that he thinks it would be a while before it was safe uh, for Bilbo to, 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 to see it again, right, to be with it. Um, and again, that's, I think, another element of that scene with Frodo that perhaps we didn't emphasize enough. I was focused on his understanding, right, on the, the that, that, that real moment of clarity that I think that Bilbo has. But I don't want to understate the significance, I think, of Bilbo's resistance to the temptation, right? Um, he isn't the one who transforms, but he could have been. He might have been. He should have been, in a sense, right? Gandalf was even worried that he might, that something bad could happen to Bilbo, that it might trigger Bilbo in a bad way uh, if he was again in the presence of the ring. But not only does he not respond to it when he sees it again, Right. And remember, he's set up for it. His asking to see it again, his asking Frodo to pull it out and show it to him is a weakness on his part. Right. That's like him giving in to that temptation. And so it's like the next thing, which seems almost inevitable when you think about it from that point of view. Right. We see how his heart is still connected to the ring, is still oriented towards the ring. We see that he's 
he's indulging that desire, right? Making an excuse, you know, kind of playing it off and, and, but, but asking to see it, right? He kind of should pounce for it. He should, uh, be, uh, sort of transformed by that desire. And then he's not, right? Instead, he does the opposite of that. And that I think, it's not only his understanding, it's not only his insight, uh, it's not only his wisdom, I think, that we need to compliment there uh, in that uh, in that moment. I think we need to um, uh, we need to praise him there that there's a there's a way in which in him saying to Frodo, put it away. Right. He is recapitulating that choice that he already made to give it up the first time, um, almost sort of like solidifying that, right? Um, in some way of, in some ways of thinking about it, I think it is almost, uh, as important a moment. He's like accomplishing again, that thing that nobody else in the history of Middle Earth has ever done. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Okay. Good. Several things. So, Mad Violinist was uh, asking, "Are we coming close to asserting that the ring is perhaps amoral rather than evil, a tool rather than the artifact of corruption we've most of us thought that it was?" Um, I don't think that that can be the case. Um, I mean, at least if that's true, then Elrond and Gandalf are wrong about it which can't absolutely rule out, but I'm inclined to think that they're probably correct about this. Um, so I don't think that that's the case. Uh, in fact, Mad, Mad Violinist, I think, th I think the thing that I'm say saying here that the conclusion that I think that, that this moment, the one that Jim is re reminding us of here, when uh, Bilbo had his sort of remote ring induced monologue here, his rationalization towards the ring, um, the conclusion that I think that this scene supports is not that the ring is not evil, but rather that the ring is not, that these, these things are not the result of the during, of the ring's direct action. Um, however, it is a result of the way in which people's hearts are being drawn towards the ring and what is being kind of, well, I don't know if it's placed in their heart or drawn out of their hearts, Right. Um, but that possessiveness, it, I think it is no coincidence that everybody who is connected to the ring, everybody who really begins thinking about the ring and desiring the ring follows the same pattern. Right. Uses the word precious, for instance, starts wanting to justify, uh, to find, to find a reason to, to, to claim that they have proper ownership of it, right? That they deserve it, that it's theirs, certainly theirs and nobody else's, right? These are patterns that we see literally every ring bearer, except Sam, potentially, um, uh, undergoing. Right. Every single one of them does this. And so therefore, I think that we can clearly see that, um, there is, um, uh, there is a, there is a direction that the ring is pulling people. Right. Um, so it's, it's definitely not having a kind of a neutral effect on folks. Um, but I'm also not really convinced that it is, um, uh, you know, sort of whispering in people's ears in the way that I think a lot of people seem to kind of unconsciously imagine, if you if you see what I mean by that. 
Um, yeah, let's see. Um, yeah, and Matt, exactly. I mean, the, the ring is the embodiment of Sauron's will and desire to dominate Middle-earth. So, yes, I mean, that's um, the... Even that desire that I was just pointing to, Matt, right? That uh, uh, that thing which is like the the first kind of common denominator among all of those who uh, desire to possess the ring or, or who, who, who do possess the ring, um, that desire to claim it, to, to, to say that it is certainly theirs and no one else has a right to it, uh, at least not as good a right as they have, um, that itself is that same kind of like that desire to to dominate, to possess, to uh, to rule over and claim for oneself. We can see a shadow of that, right, of, of that will of Sauron, of that evil will of Sauron's uh, in everybody. Um, yes, exactly. Kurtzimus says uh, to rule them all, uh, to bind them. Yes, the, the, that, that binding. And the, the binding starts at home, right? Binding is one of the things the ring is meant to do, right? One ring to rule them all, one ring uh, uh, to find them, one ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them. So that's, it, it's a thing that the ring is supposed to do to others. Um, and it seems to start with its wielder, at least when the wielder isn't Sauron. As far as we know. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Crownless, I do agree that the ring whispering uh, on Frodo's table was a cool scene. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, Crownless, I'll admit, I wasn't even remembering that scene from Jackson's film when I was, uh, when I was saying that about, about whispering. I, I think I had uh, more of a Looney Tunes uh uh picture in my head of like you know bugs bunny with the angel and the and the and the devil perched on his shoulders there um uh but um but yeah i mean you're right peter jackson actually does have the ring whisper uh uh to frodo and yeah that's kind of exactly what i sort of think doesn't happen um but uh but we'll see um Yeah, let's see. Yeah, my uh, mad violinist, you're right. Frodo is exceptional in his turning down of the ring as well. We'll we'll come to that scene. That's way in the future. He's quoting from uh, Council of Elrond, which is whew, boy. Yeah, we'll get there someday. Um. Yeah, so Fort Thoughtless is asking the logical question, is it possible that the ring has done this to Sauron too? It's really, that's, to me, that's a really chicken and egg question. I mean, on the one hand, the ring doesn't have anything that was not Sauron, right? Sauron put himself in the ring. So to say that the ring caused Sauron to start acting in a certain way or influenced him in a certain way seems to me almost nonsensical because everything the ring has came from him, right? So there's no desire for possession that the ring can inspire that was not Sauron's in the beginning because it's him, right? I mean, that's that's kind of where it all came from. And his own obsession with the ring uh, doesn't seem, I mean, is actually, does not seem to me at all in a, I mean, it's perfectly logical, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> the ring because of the amount of himself, of his own native power that he invests in it, the ring becomes something like his phylactery, right? Um, as if he were something like 
you know, uh, a, a lich or some other sorcerer from, uh, from fairy tale tradition, uh, who has placed his life essence in a, in a thing, right? In a, in a phylactery, which if it's destroyed, he dies, right? So, you know, if you're in that situation, if there's a physical object, which if it's destroyed, you're killed, you can be forgiven for being a little bit obsessive about possessing it and making sure it doesn't fall in anybody else's hands, right? And that's kind of, that's the vulnerability that Sauron gave himself uh, when he placed his power in the ring. So that's one of the reasons why, um, it's one of the reasons why uh, uh, the relationship with, between the ring and Sauron uh almost has to be fundamentally different uh, from the ring's relationship with anybody else. I mean, again, none of the, uh, none of the desires, none of the impulses, none of the, uh, you know, anything, any of those things that are placed in the ring that are part of the ring are alien to Sauron and therefore can't be acting on him from outside as it were, can't be changing him in that way. Cause they are him. Um, the second thing, of course, is that again, nobody else has the kind of dependency on the, the, the ring might be precious to everybody who holds it, right? But it's precious to Sauron in a different way and for a different reason. Nobody else has that. It's, it's not precious for that reason, right? I mean, again, you can say, well, Gollum says if the precious goes, then he will die too. Yeah, sure. That's true. Um, but again, it's, it's, um, it's not quite the same. I mean, you can begin to compare, right? Uh, and that I think is something that'll be interesting for us to look at when we get there, that Gollum's dependency on the ring um, begins to approach Sauron-esque levels, right? Because he has been uh, stretched out past his natural uh, time, um, and it is only the ring that keeps him alive. Um, but... Um, yeah. Matt, what a great question. Hey, Matt, could you, uh, could you post that question about, uh, the poem, the ring poem on the discussion board? That'll be worth talking about, but I think at another time. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Let's see. Oh man, so many comments. Let's see. Does Sauron call it my precious too? I wouldn't be shocked. In fact, it'd be kind of cool uh, if everybody else calling it my precious was really just echoing Sauron. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for Thoughtless, yes, Sauron would never, okay, okay, when Gandalf asserts that Sauron would never even consider that someone would try to destroy the ring, yeah, there's context for that. Um, Sauron knows that it can be destroyed. Um, he is vulnerable and it can be used against him. I mean, the evidence suggests that Sauron could indeed be overthrown. If Gandalf or Elrond or Galadriel or possibly even Aragorn claimed the ring and used it, they could, in fact, throw down Sauron and take his place. 
So the vul Sauron's vulnerability, one way and another, is real. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I, that's I, that's that's a real thing. He does think, and 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 I'm wondering to what extent there's also some kind of wishful thinking here. Um, uh, but anyway, we can talk about that more when the time comes. Um, that nobody will destroy it, but you know. Was he, uh, was he worried, you know, after he was overthrown, uh, you know, uh, on Oradruin? I bet he sure was. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's see. Oh, man. So many things. Let's see. JJ says, we already said that the main difference with Sauron is his willing participation. Isn't everyone pretty much being forced to experience what Sauron willingly, willingly went through to some extent? Mm, maybe. Maybe. Uh, but see, I, JJ, I think that the thing, the thing, uh, the, the, the words in your, in your question, that give me pause. It's not the word willingly. It's went through, right? Sauron doesn't suffer anything, right? This is his choice, right? He wants to dominate. He wants to rule others. Um, so he didn't go through anything. He rolls the dice, right? He sees a means to his end, but the means to his end is also going to weaken him. So is, is going to, is going to make him vulnerable in a way that he was not vulnerable before. But it will also be the means to the end of, uh, def of defeating, indeed of enslaving, uh, his primary enemies, right? His greatest enemies. So he rolls the dice, right? He takes that risk. And in the end, it doesn't pan out for him eventually, right? Um, so I do think that it is, we can see people being kind of brought into, like the ring bearers, being brought into a more sort of, uh, uh, what would the adjectival form be? Sauronic point of view, right? Um, I, I think that we can, I think that we can see that potentially, but at the same time, um, Again, but, 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 but I don't think it's like that they're like suffering what he suffered. Cause I don't think he suffered exactly. Um, yeah. Um, let's see. Yeah. And no trifle. You're right. He's not going to die, uh, when the ring is destroyed. Um, he'll only be mostly dead not all dead um and trifle i agree also i don't mean that he isn't going to suffer after it. i'm just saying what happens to him like the in his relationship with the ring yeah yeah um <laughs> I like Fourth Thoughtless's uh, uh, definition. Sauronic, adjective. Subject to bouts of ironically self-defeating poor decision-making. <laughs> that works. That works. All right. Okay. 
Well, again, this is a question we're going to keep coming back to. Um, but as I said, Jim, thank you for pointing this out because I did definitely want to emphasize I see this not as a conclusive thing. This isn't a smoking gun. This doesn't prove anything. But it is a really interesting data point, right, that when we see different people who appear to be operating under the influence of the ring, I think it's going to be important to compare, compare it, to remember this moment with Bilbo, um, that we have this one clear case. And Matt, I agree with you. Saruman is, is, an all, is another interesting case in a similar direction that suggests it's not just the presence of the ring that excites this kind of thing, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Trifle, I agree. It is rather horrific to think about just how the ring would work if someone used it to dominate and enslave Sauron himself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, right, it's all about throwing him down and taking his place, right? You, you would really become him there, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Back to the poem. So, I thought um, I thought it would be fun to uh, go back to the beginning and start again. You know, because like Tolkien, right? We only got through three stanzas, so rather than continuing from there, I thought we'd do the tried-and-true Tolkien revision method and go back and start at the beginning again. I'm half kidding. Um, we're not going to discuss the first three stanzas again, because I feel comfortable with where we were on those last time, but I did want to start reading it again at the beginning so that we could uh, uh, refresh them in our minds uh, as we uh, as we move forward, and then we'll stop at the fourth stanza and discuss it there. Okay, so just to get it back into your ears again, and remember what we said about the, uh, uh, what we said about the, um, uh, the structure, right? And the, 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 the sort of mechanism of the poem here. Arendel was a mariner that tarried in Arvernian. He built a boat of timber felled in Nimbrathil to journey in. Her sails he wove of silver fair, of silver were her lanterns made. Her prow he fashioned like a swan, and light upon her banners laid. In panoply of ancient kings, in chained rings he armored him. His shining shield was scored with runes to ward all wounds and harm from him. His bow was made of dragon horn, his arrow shorn of ebony. Of silver was his haberjan, his scabbard of chalcedony. His sword of steel was valiant, of adamant his helmet tall, an eagle plume upon his crest, upon his breast an emerald. Beneath the moon and under star he wandered far from northern strands, bewildered on enchanted ways beyond the days of mortal lands. From gnashing of the narrow ice where shadow lies on frozen hills, from nether heats and burning waste he turned in haste, and roving still on starless waters far astray, at last he came to night of naught, and passed in never sight he saw of shining shore nor light he sought. The winds of wrath came driving him, and blindly in the foam he fled, from west to east and errandless, unheralded he homeward sped. Their flying Elwing came to him, and flame was in the darkness lit, more bright than light of diamond the fire upon her carcanet. 
The Silmaril she bound on him and crowned him with the living light, and dauntless then with burning brow he turned his prow, and in the night from other world beyond the sea there strong and free a storm arose, a wind of power in Tarmanel, by paths that seldom mortal goes. His boat it bore with biting breath as might of death across the grey and long-forsaken seas distressed. From east to west he passed away. Okay. What do you notice in this stanza here? Okay, yes, Mad Violinist says we're back in broken sentence land as he goes back through fairy. So you remember, in stanza three, one of the main things we were noticing is that the syntactical structure of the poem started to break down. It's, it's, it's even, the, the, the beat, the measure of the beats in the, in the lines is still even. But you, uh, you'll remember we were beginning to see more enjambment, right? Instead of the even four line blocks that we were getting, um, it was much more, it got much more choppy, especially there in the middle as he's trying, as he's, you know, he's sailing from north to south and he's trying to get into the west, but he was failing, right? And ended up, at last he came to night of naught and never sight he saw of shining shore nor light he sought. Um, so we do see a similar pattern here. Let's, um, Start at the beginning there. Their flying Elwing came to him, and flame was in the darkness lit, more bright than light of diamond, the fire upon her carcanet. Okay, so that's another neat one, right? Uh, just like we saw before, the last stanza also started with a neat quatrain before things got a little messy in the middle, right? Um, and, uh, notice in that first stanza, how well how little information we get right so first of all it's not even explained who elwing is now you know okay fine so we appear to be assuming that piece of information fine we assume that we know who elwing is i guess um but uh uh there flying Elwing came to him. So, and remember, he had just unheralded, he homeward sped. Uh, so he's heading back into the east, right? He's, he's failed. He's headed back home. Um, and yes, we do know who she was. I mean, even we, if we're reading this story for the first time, have a fighting chance to remember that Elwing was, uh, was his wife, right? Um, but, uh, but anyway, then flying Elwing came to him, and flame was in the darkness lit. Notice, of course, the alliteration in those two lines, right? The flying and the flame as the second beat of both of those two lines in a row, right? And, of course, flame was in uh, is the rhyming phrase to came to him, right? So her coming to him and the flame in the darkness uh, are paired, right? So she is connected with that light, with that that light shining in the darkness, and remember, darkness is a kind of a thing that he's been. You know, he was just in the night of naught, right in the starless skies and everything. Um, darkness is all that he found, and now, having been turned away amidst that darkness, now he is 
uh, or rather she, coming to him is associated with the flame and the lighting of that darkness, right? Uh, is this the first Silmaril mention of the Silmaril in the Lord of the Rings? I think Brick Tales is right. That also got a brief mention by Aragorn uh, in his uh, uh, prose contextualization of the Baron and Luthien story. But we certainly really don't know what they are. Definitely. Um, more bright than light of diamond, the fire upon her carcanet. One of the things that I love about this, um, and it's just in context of uh, what Ardent Crayon and Bricktails were just discussing, we know a little bit about what a Silmaril, like we've heard of a Silmaril before, right? But we don't really know what it is, right? What's the, what's a Silmaril, right? So, I mean, what's the big deal about a Silmaril? Um, notice how those lines themselves suggest it, right? More bright than light of diamond, the fire upon her carcanet. The rhyme between diamond and fire upon right, itself kind of gives us the Silmaril. Like, imagine a diamond, right, and fire upon it, <laughs> right? So we've got the this uh, the bright light and the diamond uh, together. Um yeah, uh, spiritual cushions. Is that the Nauglamir? Yes. The carcanet that she is wearing is the Nauglamir with the Silmaril in. Uh, yes, yes. It is, uh, uh, it is the, the carcanet, uh, that was worn by, uh, Luthien. Yep, yep, that is the case. Exactly. Great. Thank you, Bruce, for looking that up. At Weathertop, Aragorn says the Noldor made war upon him to regain the Silmarils which he had stolen. Yep. So something precious. That's pretty much what we know. Yeah, Matthew, you're right. A Silmaril is a lot like a Sampo um, in the sense that we know it's important and everybody values it. And apparently it's worth going to war for, but we have no idea what it is. The Sampo, of course, is that mysterious object uh, in uh, uh, in the uh, in, you know, in the the. Kalevala, goodness, blanking on the name of it. Yes, in the, the Kalevala, the, the Finnish, uh, um, uh, uh, epic. And anyway, yeah. So, I mean, it talks about the Sampo and everybody loves the Sampo and everybody wants the Sampo and it's super valuable, but we have the faintest idea what it actually is. Um, within the context of the Lord of the Rings so far, yeah, the Silmaril is a lot like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Ah, okay. We do get the reference to that. They are the brightest of all jewels. Okay, good. Excellent. When the wind Baron and Luthien steal it. Excellent. Very good. Um, okay. So again, we, we see that echoed here, right? The light of diamond, the fire upon, uh, her carcanet. Now we get the name, the Silmaril. She bound on him and crowned him with the living light and dauntless. Then with burning brow, he turned his prow and in the night, from other world beyond the sea, they're strong and free. A storm arose. Notice what happens. Um, that strong break in the middle of the line, right? And again, we've noticed it's only happened once, I think, so far in the entire poem, um, that we have had a sejura sort of pushed on us in the middle of a line. That's not the normal pattern in this poem at all. Um, we got it in the last stanza, you'll recall, at... Um, at last he came to night of naught and passed, 
and never sight he saw of shining shore nor light he sought, right? Um, we get it here at what is literally the turning point, right? He's giving up. He's been defeated. Then Elwing comes and is a light in the darkness, and she brings the Silmaril, and she crowns him with the living light, and dauntless then, with burning brow, he turned his prow, and in the night. Right, so the night, of course, rhyme, uh, in the night, rhyming with living light, so that's the end of the, of the quatrain, but just as we saw before, it's in the same position, that pause, right, just before the terminal rhyme, which is supposed to tie up the previous quatrain, and instead, it's the break comes before it, so it's being uh, it's sort of being linked forward or or kind of cut off from the uh, from the thing that came before it, right? Um, uh, yeah. So the Silmaril she bound on him and crowned him with the living light, and dauntless then with burning brow he turned his prow, and in the night from other world beyond the sea there strong and free a storm arose a wind of power in Tarmanel by paths that seldom mortal goes his boat it bore with biting breath as might of death across the grey and long forsaken seas distressed from east to west he passed away Whew, i didn't do it quite right because that's a almost breathless statement there is a um there is a pause after Tarmanel, right? Um, so let's just go that far. And in the night, from other world beyond the sea, there strong and free a storm arose, a wind of power in Tarmanel. Okay, that alone, before the break there. First of all, once again, it's breaking up the next quatrain, right? Uh, mortal goes rhymes with storm arose. So although he's not interrupting the rhyme scheme, Right. It's it's a really interesting thing that he does in both of these last two stanzas in order to change up kind of the pace of things and the way that these ideas are being brought together. He doesn't alter the rhyme scheme, which he could do. Right. He could alter the rhyme scheme. And by altering the rhyme scheme, it would force us to to kind of connect things differently. But he doesn't do that. What he does is just insert pauses. Right. Um. So, the storm, yeah. Let's go back to the storm here for a second. Thinking back to the, his failure previously, right? Remember the wind of wrath? We've, he, we've already experienced this, or at least something quite like it, right? Remember, at last he came to night of naught, and passed in never sight he saw of shining shore, nor light he sought. The winds of wrath came driving him, and blindly in the foam he fled from west to east, and errandless, unheralded, he homeward sped. Right? So he's driven away by the winds of wrath. We have seen a wind arise, right? But it was in his face. It was pushing him back to the east. That was his failure, right? He was not, he was trying to go into the west, but it wasn't working out. So when we are told before that break, that strong and free a storm arose, my initial, you know, assumption, conclusion, is that it's probably the same kind of thing as the previous, um, uh, what was the very wind of wrath, right? 
He's turning around again, right back towards that that wind of wrath that pushed him away before, right? And what happens as soon as he does? In the night from other world beyond the sea, there strong and free a storm arose. Doesn't it sound like it's coming in from in front of him? From other world beyond the sea? There strong and free a storm arose, a wind of power in Tarmanel. Okay, wind of power, right? Uh, is that power wrathful, do we think, right? Um, is he gonna get, is he getting smacked down again or pushed back again now that he has turned his prow once again with the Silmaril on his brow? Um, uh, yeah, um, Notice the emphasis on his, on the darkness again, right? He was coming out of darkness, being pushed by, running blindly in the foam, right? And then Elwing comes and flame was in the darkness lit, right? She brings light. Now there is light. Notice what kind of, it's kind of interesting if you step back from this. What do we see? We see Arendelle's ship. Right, filled with the light of the Silmaril, surrounded by the light of the Silmaril. You know, so we've got a flame was in the darkness lit. It's the only thing that you can see, right? I bet if you kind of were looking at this from, if you got like a helicopter shot of uh, of of Arendel and Elwing and their ship here, it would kind of look like a star in a black sky. There's no other light around, right, except for the light of their ship. He turns his prow, and then, um. The storm arises. It was a wind of wrath before, and now it's a storm arising. Um, Fort Dauntless asks if we're to understand that this storm is deadly cold, with biting breath as might of death. Maybe. Tim Doff is asking if, uh, you know, is, is he in some sense trying to violate the ban of the Valar by sailing west despite the, the wind of wrath? Well, I mean, you know, not the the Numenorean ban. Of course, this is before the Numenorean ban. But is there a sense in what, that he's transgressing? I mean, yeah. I, look, he just went. He just knocked on the door, right? He just knocked on the door and got a pretty clear answer, right? I mean, the winds of wrath. It's not just winds. These were winds of wrath, right? He got a no, thank you, and I really mean it from the West just now, and was heading home in defeat, right? So he, yeah, exactly. A big old no solicitation sign uh, hung out by the Valar there, Ambrosius. Absolutely. Um, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and again, I, it sounds, um, except on party business, Ambrosius. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. Um, Yeah, oh, Fort Thomas, we'll get to that in a second. So I think that there's some real suspense here. And honestly, suspense seems to me that pause after Tarmanel, which, of course, is not a word that is going to make any sense, right? We've never heard that word. Uh, those of us reading The Lord of the Rings for the first time have never heard that word, right? So we don't even know what that means. Um, but... um 
again, I mean, like, we, we have no cues from within the text for what that means. Um, but the pause comes right before the revelation of what's really happening. Because, of course, what's really happening is that the wind, the storm that is arising, the wind of power is not pushing against him. It's now pushing behind him. Now the entire thing turns around, right? And in the night from other world beyond the sea, there strong and free, a storm arose, a wind of power in Tarmanel. By paths that seldom mortal goes, his boat it bore with biting breath as might of death across the gray and long forsaken seas distressed. I still can't do it in one breath. From east to west, he passed away. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hang on, though, guys. I see you guys are talking about, like, his quest and pleading with the Valar and stuff. Stop it. Remember, you've never read the Silmarillion before. Remember, I told you last week, forget you know anything about the Silmarillion. What do we know about what Arendel's doing? We've only been told one thing about what Arendel's doing, right? That he's uh, uh, seeking light, shining shore nor light he sought. He's looking for, a sh- for the shining shore. That's it. That's all we know. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not rebuking you, just reminding you, right? Um, cause again, if we're, if we do that, if we import too much Silmarillion stuff, I'm not saying obviously it's inappropriate to do that, but I don't want to do that just now because we need to focus on what the poem itself does. Um, thinking about it in the context of other things is totally fine to do, but it's going to just muck things up if we're just wanting to look at the poem. Right. Because if we're importing stuff from outside, then we're adding things that aren't there in the poem. And therefore, we're losing sight of what the poem itself is doing. You see what I mean? OK. Um, yeah. Yes. Mad violinist, I agree. Um, I think we can conclude that the difference between the previous failure and and the success now is the Silmaril, or Elwing herself. Exactly. But notice, um, it is not, this is much more than simply, he was not capable of succeeding before, but now he has the capability to succeed, right? This is not like, he's not just getting a buff from the, Sil- from the Silmaril here, right? You know, this is not just a question of like, um, you know, the, uh, the Silmaril has, like, basically he was, he was in the, you know, the night of naught before, right? He couldn't steer. He had no light. Well, now he's got a really good lamp. So yeah, no problem. Through the darkness he goes, right? That's not, um, that's not the way that it happens at all. It is way more dramatic than that. The first time the wind of wrath pushes him back. Now, the storm arising, the wind of power from Tarmanel is pushing him forward. This is not a question of Arendel and his boat now accomplishing something that they failed to, now having the ability to accomplish something that they couldn't accomplish before. It is a question of he is now being given an invitation where before he was being refused. And he's not just being given an invitation, an invitation, right? He is being compelled 
compelled to Valinor. It, it is a wind of power that is blowing him, and look at what he's doing. It's doing to him. By paths that seldom mortal goes, his boat it bore with biting breath. So remember that that um, it's common, it's totally understandable to link by paths that seldom mortal goes. Uh, I think in my own head, I always link that to the quatrain before because it fits in that quatrain, right? That is, there strong and free a storm arose, a wind of power in Tarmanel by paths that seldom mortal goes, right? If you follow the quatrain, then I, I always kind of um, lump that in, like as if the storm is arising, like as if the wind of power is coming in by a path that seldom mortal goes, Right. But that's not the syntax. Here again, the syntax of the sentences are in tension with the rhyme scheme, which is remaining regular, right? By paths that seldom mortal goes, linked by rhyme to strong and free a storm arose, right? Paths that seldom, uh, we get Tarmanel by paths that seldom mortal goes. That's a pretty loose rhyme, uh, uh, internal rhyme there. But anyway, syntactically, it totally, it's describing not the path of the storm, but the path of the boat, right? By paths that seldom mortal goes, his boat it bore, with biting breath, as might of death, across the gray and long forsaken seas distressed. What is distressed, by the way? Well, syntax, we need to diagram this sentence, right? Whoa. Hey, that would be a fun activity. We should do that at a moot sometime. This sentence, which begins with the Silmaril she bound on him and ends with passed away. That's one sentence, right? Let's diagram that puppy. Um, what's distressed? That is, what word is that, is that word modifying? If we're diagramming the sentence, what, um, what word does uh, the word distressed appear on a little diagonal line underneath? By paths that seldom mortal goes, his boat it bore with biting breath as might of death across the gray and long forsaken seas distressed. Let's back up a, a step here. Let's back up a step. That's an independent clause. After the semicolon, that's an independent. That last bit is an independent clause, right? By paths that seldom mortal goes, his boat it bore with with biting breath, as might of death across the gray and long forsaken seas distressed. What's the subject? What's the subject and verb of that independent clause? Subject and verb. Bore is the verb? Yes. Yes. Ah, it. No, no, no. See, uh, it's tricky. Boat is not the subject. Boat is the direct object. It is the subject. It bore his boat. It being, of course, the storm, the wind of power. Right? So it, which is the storm and the wind of power, bore his boat. Right? And then we get a whole bunch of adverbs, right? We get an adverbial 
phrase. Where did it, you know, by what man, by what means did it bear, or like in what manner did it bear his boat? By paths that seldom mortal goes. That's an adverbial phrase, right? Um, how did it bear, like what was the quality of the bearing of the boat? With biting breath, as might of death. Across, uh, uh, where did it bear his boat? Across the gray and long forsaken seas. Right? Across the gray and long forsaken seas is the prepositional phrase. Right? So exactly, the storm has biting breath. Absolutely. With its biting breath, that is the biting breath of the storm, the wind of, the wind of power, it is bearing his boat by paths that seldom mortal goes, with biting breath, as, as might of death, across the gray and long forsaken seas. So what about distressed, then? <laughs> it's a chance for the storm to show its quality. Yeah, the, short, the storm shows its qualities. It shows a bunch of qualities, right? All these adverbs. I think that distressed is another one, another adverb. Exactly. Yeah, the boat is distressed, or like the, yes, or, um, yes, exactly. It's not the seas that are distressed. It looks like it, because it's right next to it, right? Um, very natural to think that, uh, uh, because again, normally in English, proximity is how we decide what is modifying what, right? But not always the case in poetry, naturally. Um, so, um, uh, yes. So, it bore his boat by paths that seldom mortal goes with biting breath as might of death across the gray and long forsaken seas, distressed. Um, I think it now is distressed an adjective modifying boat. Um, I think you could make an argument for that. Um, distressed, uh, well, I mean, I, I, I do think that the word jazz implies that it's the passengers that are distressed, probably not the boat itself, but that would be, uh, metonymy. Yes. Metonymy. Yes. A piece of metonymy, um, uh, uh, by which that is being, uh, uh, being <laughs> Simon, you're 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 distressed by by trying to figure out distressed here, yeah, yeah. Um, so then let's ask uh, the next question, which is why is the word distressed put at the very end? And of course, uh, it's not enough to say because it fits the rhyme scheme, right? Uh, that is a lazy answer. Um, Notice whichever word, whether we read distressed as an adjective or an adverb, it's past participle, right? So it can theoretically serve as either one. Um, if we, uh, uh, if we see distressed as either an adjective or adverb, it is far removed from the word that it is modifying, which as I say is unusual in English. You can do it, uh, in poetry, but you kind of have to have a reason, uh, or else it's clumsy. And I don't think that this is clumsy. 
Um, By paths that seldom mortal goes, his boat it bore. Notice that that's a little weird, too. Having that by paths that seldom mortal goes, his boat it bore is significantly inverted as well. Right. Um, This kind of uh, strain of syntax there, right, is um, a feature of this whole little section here. And that seems to me really to fit with what he's uh, describing there. Um, Let's see. Uh, Simon said, it still makes sense. I think it still makes sense as... uh, mm, No, distressed can't be a verb, Simon. It's a a past participle. Um, uh, The... Yeah, no. Um... The only way that the word distressed could be a verb and not a participle is if it's being used as a transitive verb, like meaning with a direct object, like requiring a direct object. Like if the sea was distressing somebody, um, uh, like uh, if you're, uh, if you're, you know, like uh, uh you know. Watching your children do something dangerous, you as a parent can be distressed, right? But only the child can distress the parents, right? You know, uh, 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 as a transitive verb there, right? Um, so to say, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, the kid distressed his mother, uh, you know, by, uh, uh, you know, in, in his uh, uh, football play or something like that, right? Um, that's the only way in which the word distressed can be used in that, like, with that word distressed as a past tense verb. Um, otherwise, it's a participle. Even to say, like, to be distressed, you know, he was distressed by this. You're just using a past participle with the verb to be, right? Um, distressed is usually... Um, yeah, no, you can't distress. He can't be distressing the seas again. Then what's distressing the seas? Uh, and it can't be it because it already has its verb. It's bearing, uh, and it's you know it, it bore, and there's no conjunction to indicate that it's a compound verb, right? That it's bearing the ship and distressing the seas, right? Uh, besides which, I don't see why the seas should be especially distressed. Um, yeah, I mean, again, I understand that it almost sounds like that because again, in English, normally, right. The, uh, the modifier and the thing modified go right next to each other, right? Um, but, um, but yeah, no, no, that's just, it's just syntactically, that's not really plausible. Um, uh, and again, we already, cause remember, nouns have jobs, right? This is where sentence diagramming is so useful. What is the job of C's? C's cannot be. It's impossible for C's to be the direct object of a verb distressed because it's already doing a job. C's has another job and its job is object of the preposition across, across the C's. It cannot be the direct object of the verb as well. Nouns can't moonlight in the same sentence. No, they cannot. They have a job, one job. A noun can only do one job syntactically in a sentence. So yeah, again, it's really complicated, but this is, again, this is where, this is where diagramming is really helpful. Um, okay. Uh, 
so again, why? Why? Um, and yeah, sorry, Sharon, you're absolutely right. Uh, the alliteration uh, is really cool. Um, uh, this is the that his boat it bore with biting breath is the most alliterative line in the entire poem so far. We've seen a little bit of alliteration, right? But it absolutely goes hog wild in this little independent clause, right? By paths that seldom mortal goes, his boat it bore with biting breath, as might of death across the gray and long forsaken seas distressed. And of course, Sharon, you were also right that the S's, though they're not initial consonants, uh, become very prominent in that, the last line of that, uh, of that clause, right? Long forsaken seas distressed. Uh, Mudmore says, I say poetry can break rules. Yes, it can bend them, but no, it does not break sy syntactic rules. Um, not poetry like this, anyway. Um, yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, because once you start doing that, uh, once you start saying, like, oh, but it's poetry, so, like, rules don't apply, then, uh, like, you, it's time to, like, stop. <laughs> basically it's like game over essentially um again it's uh it's sort of like um the metaphor that c.s lewis uses when he says like uh you know if you're playing chess together with somebody else you can bend the rules like you can like uh if uh you can choose to let somebody take a, a move back or something but if one of the players just decided like well from now on my knight can like move diagonally as far as he wants to go then like you can't really you 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 you, you can't play anymore right um it's um uh, it's uh it's a completely di different game now it might be an interesting game kind of like calvin ball is sort of an interesting sport in calvin and hobbs uh but it's not really you know uh football anymore um Jabberwocky does not break language rules, Bruinier. Not at all. Jabberwocky is a perfectly syntactical poem. What Jabberwocky does is stretch vocabulary and use words that you don't know what they mean, right? But it's a perfectly there's there's no there's not a single rule broken in Jabberwocky. No, not even not even uh, not even at all. Um, yeah. Um, Exactly. Yeah, Brandon was just saying the same thing. Um, if you don't, um, if if it didn't, if Jabberwocky didn't abide by syntactical rules, then it would convey nothing. It would it would lose the entire effect of the poem. The whole point is, you know the role that those words are playing, right? Um, so you might not know what uffish thought means, right? But you know, meaning is conveyed to you exactly by the syntax, because you see the position that it plays, you know the role that that word is supposed to be playing in that sentence. And so you have some idea, right? Um, but um, anyway, anyway, <laughs> so, so I'm not trying to be like the grammar, pool, you know, the syntax police here, but I, that's a really, really, I, I think that, that that's a, that's a super important point. Um, and the, uh, the, the, again, the, the significant thing here. Tolkien is very much stretching the normal conventions of word order, right? Which 
doesn't break syntax, but it does put a strain on it. And that's one of the, the ways in it. So it, to, to that extent, you can say poetry can break the rules. If you did this in a normal English sentence, right? If you were just speaking prose in a normal day to day way and you put distressed, which let's say, let's say for, you know, for argument's sake that that's an adjective describing boat, right? If you uttered a sentence in prose like tomorrow, you know, at work, uh, that separated your adjective that far from your noun, nobody would get it and it would be your fault, right? I mean, like, that's just, that's not okay. That is not how English works in an inflected language. If you were speaking Latin or Greek, you'd be fine, right? You could totally do that and it would be a little bit awesome, right? Uh, and really great orators would do that. However, um, uh, in poetry, you can do that. Right. Um, so in that way, it does break a rule because you could say that that is a rule. I mean, again, it's it's uh, um, in a normal prose sentence. Word order matters. I mean, you know, if you change the order of the words in an English sentence, you change the meaning often. Right. Because, again, uh, proximity matters uh, when it comes to like what what word does what is the antecedent of a pronoun? Right. What. Uh, a noun is an adjective describing, right? I mean, those are the things that, um, uh, that, that those are rules, right? Um, or at least conventions, which come pretty close to rules if you want to be understood. Um, uh, yeah. Um, good. So yeah, a mad violinist, I absolutely agree. The distance between distressed and what it's modifying conveys that endless moment of chaos that the sailors would be enduring in this storm from out in this storm from out of the world. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, exactly. That, I think, is the whole point. Um, the seas. Uh, I don't think it's the seas that are distressed. Now, I will say, Ambrosius, that we could say um there could be a a kind of a double meaning there like or you know it is natural it is the natural english thing to connect distressed back to seas because it's the thing that's right next to it right um you uh um but but i don't think that's the primary meaning of the sentence right the boat it bore is the center of the this entire clause Right. Almost all of it is adverbial describing the bearing of the boat. Right. Um, we've already gotten descriptions of the seas that it is gray and long forsaken. That is, we've had two adjectives in front of it. Right. And to add another adjective at the end would be a little bit weird. And it's a weird kind of personification of the sea. I know that the sea is uh, being whipped up by the storm. And so you could say that it was distressed. Um, but I... Uh, it seems to me very prohibitively likely that, again, like the entire rest of this clause, it's all focused on the bearing of the boat, right? And so it is the boat, and therefore, by metonymy, of course, all the people in the boat um, who are uh, being distressed here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Iwendillian says, do poets really think about all this as they write? Well, I mean... Yes. Yeah. I mean, 
as they write and rewrite and rethink it and everything in some in some ways. But keep in mind, Iwindelian, um, when we as readers go through and kind of parse poetry and really think it through, think about it this way. Think about think about a physical athlete, right? Think about an athlete who does something amazing. Right. Um, like a baseball player who, you know, makes a diving stop on a ball and then turn and turns and like makes an incredible throw across the infield or from out from the outfield. Right. Uh, which, you know, ends up right on target. What happened happens in a split second. Right. It is like the the like the the muscle memory and natural gift of the athlete who has a general idea of what he wants to do, right, and is kind of acting on impulse, um, but executes this amazing thing. Now, to actually break down, like, what did he do, why did he do it, and how did he make that happen, right? What are the things that went into doing that, right? takes a lot of unpacking, but it only took a fraction of a second to do, and he did it almost instinctively, right? Um, that's... Uh, um, that's exactly the the kind of thing uh, that I think it's it, w- one of the ways in which I kind of understand this. I do think it's very possible that a poet can just kind of come out with a line, which in order to really unpack all of the ways that it works and the impact that it has on the lines around it. Right. And, and all of the different meanings that it conveys can take a really long time and be really, uh, really sort of awkward, but that's what it happens when you translate poetry into prose. It's one of the points of poetry. It's one of the things that makes poetry awesome is that in way fewer words, you can say so many things, right? You can, you can utter paragraphs and paragraphs of meaning in just a couple, a handful of words and how they go together. To me, that is exactly what makes poetry so amazing and so important. Um, and so delightful, you know, to, uh, uh, to think about and do. So, um, anyway, but it does mean that when we're actually talking about it and thinking it through, that it makes it sort of seem kind of cumbrous, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, um, let's see. Yeah, exactly, Bricktails. If the ball player tried thinking through each step, he'd never throw the ball. Exactly. Uh, and if the poet, in the process of writing was actually like stopping to plan out every possible multiple meaning of things, then yeah, I think it would probably end up being a pretty bad poem. Um, so do I think that all of them were all intended exactly as the, as we can see later before the fact? No, but again, that's not how it works when in the, during the moment of composition necessarily, though I do agree, Tim, as you suggested before, um, that, um, uh, that, um, the, uh, in revision, I, I, I think poets as they're going through and rethinking and reworking the lines do often think about many of these things. Okay. But let us get back to the, the, uh, distressed boat and presumably the people on it. Backing up now, uh, having parsed that a bit. Okay. Quite a bit, actually. Um, the wind of power, the strong and free storm. Free is a word that I'm really interested in here. Um, and it's important because it's the internal rhyme, right? Beyond the sea, they're strong and free. A storm arose. Um, 
In what sense is this storm? I, I get that it's strong. That doesn't surprise me that it's free. Freer than the other? Why is it being, why is this storm being called free? Um, I, um, yeah. Oh, there we go. Awesome. Matt coming in with the Yeats quote from the poem Adam's Curse. A line will take us hours, maybe, yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been not. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah, good. Um, the storm is free because it's a storm of the West. Yes. Free, perhaps, because it's not a storm. Yes, good. I was just going to say that, Jez, but you've said it much better. Um, free in that the air slash winds came from the other world. Yes, yes. Strong and free in the... Normally, a storm is not free, right? That is to say, it's like the product of various meteorological factors, right? Uh, you know, uh, warm fronts and cold fronts and things like that, right? Um, this storm is strong, but it is also free in that, oops, I've gone backwards accidentally, in that it is coming from other world beyond the sea, right? Um, it is, this is a storm which has arisen, which has nothing to do with the normal weather patterns of Middle Earth, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, good. I think that that's, that, that seems to me a really good way to think about that. We haven't talked about my favorite internal rhyme in the whole poem, though. I love those lines. And, and Sharon, the alliteration is the thing, the combination of the closeness of the internal rhyme with the alliteration makes those two lines just so much fun to read. By paths that seldom mortal goes, his boat it bore with biting breath as might of death across the gray and long forsaken seas distressed. Biting breath and as might of death. Um, that simile is a very interesting one. Now, the biting breath does imply, as I forget who it was uh, much earlier, uh, suggested that the biting breath is perhaps very cold. Um, perhaps so. Uh, maybe that's what it means. I mean, we often use that uh, that uh, that uh, present participle biting uh, to describe uh, a cold wind, right? Um, but um, as might of death across the gray, with biting breath, as might of death across the gray and long forsaken seas. Um, It bore with biting breath as might of death. So it is the wind, the biting breath of the wind that is being compared to the might of death. Before, Eärendil was pushed back by the winds of wrath, right? And he was pushed away, running blindly, right, through the foam before that wind. He couldn't make any headway against that wind. But this wind, right, this wind is being compared to the strength of death itself. This wind is as irresistible as the strength of death. You, you, you can't, it is, it is inexorable, right? Um, this is the, this is, this is the, 
This is the feeling of inevitability, right, that is pushing him towards the West here. And so, again, I think I know when I first read this story, the story of Arendel. I mean, an Elwing coming to him and binding the Silmarillion on him. Um, I know that I read that as, again, so, you know, like he is kind of leveling up, right? You know, he now has, like, Silmarillion capability on his ship, which is, like, totally going to help him, like, steer in ways that he wasn't from before. Um, uh, that, you know, he, uh, is going to now make it through where he couldn't make it before. That the, the, this, the power of the Silmarillion, like, there was a, if there was some kind of, if we understand there being some kind of barrier that he wasn't able to go through, the Silmarillion is going to burst through the barrier and enable him to break through. Right. I know that was the, the, the concept. I had in my mind for what happens with Arendel here. Um, but that's not what this poem is describing at all. Uh, once he binds the Silmarillion on his bow and turns his, on his brow and turns his prow, uh, he is being conveyed forcibly. He cannot possibly get, he couldn't go east if he wanted to, right? The might of death itself, like the, a, a, a wind which is being compared to the strength of death, uh, is compelling him into the West. Um, from east to west, he passed away. And yes, uh, Ambrogius, I agree, I, I can't avoid the other meaning of passed away either, right? I mean, he's he's passing from east to west, right? That last line is which is left all by itself, right? After that long and breathless and uh, convoluted clause, right? And long forsaken seas distressed from east to west, he passed away, right? The last line sort of sits by its own and it's really simple, right? Um, but yes, it sounds really kind of ominous, right? Um, yeah, so Kersimus absolutely... It's an east wind, um, or at least it's a wind that is blowing him from east to west, but it's not really emerging from the east. It's coming from other world, beyond the sea. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Matt Violinist, I do agree that there's an act that starts that. Um, if he doesn't turn, it, it doesn't happen until he turns his prow. Absolutely, no, no, no. I, I don't want to make it sound like he's a victim, or something. Um, what I'm saying is once he turns his prow, he is brought in again. It's not just that he is enabled to achieve what he failed to achieve before. Um, the difference is, but the, the difference is radical, right? It's the difference between being prevented and being compelled, right? I mean, that's, uh, yeah. So, um, he did, Make the choice to turn his prow. I suspect if Elwing, when Elwing comes to him and binds the Silmar on him, if he keeps going east, he could. I, I don't see any reason to think that he could not have just gone home with Elwing, right? Um, I mean, of course, we know if we briefly remember our Silmarillion that there's no home to go to, but whatever. We don't know that, right? And so, um, he does choose to turn his prow and it is when he turns it. So I agree. It's triggered by a choice of his, by an action of his. Absolutely. But, Again, from then on, it's not like, and, you know, amped up by the power of the Silmaril, he succeeds where he previously failed. That's not what the poem, uh, is, uh, is describing. Yes, the, it's, 
if we understand the wind of power to be a consequence, Rayburn says, you say, of his actions, um, it's a, it's a, it is indeed a mighty consequence. And as soon as that comes into play, he's no longer, he's no longer steering, right? He is no longer in control of the progress of his ship from east to west. Um, at this point, it's clear he cannot go back. He is being compelled like death. And so, yes, it is important to, uh, for us to, um, it's important for us to remember the two ways, first explicitly and second implicitly, that his passing from east to west is being compared to death, right? Again, it's not being compared to triumph. It's not, you know, we're not, we're not being prompted to look at this as victory on his part. Um, he's getting what he wanted. He is achieving his quest, but he is being drawn by a, by a, a power which is like the, 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 the power of death itself. This is a kind of death that he's, that he's dying. Um, yeah, Tim, that's a great way of saying it. The wind is free, but he is no longer so. Absolutely. He is not any longer free. From the minute he turns his prow, he's done. He is done. He cannot go into the east anyway. He's going to come into the west. And as we know, he's never going to be able to return. Right. Um, in that moment, that choice of his is irrevocable and he is now in the power of something that is as strong as death um yeah absolutely hey i know let's do another stanza through ever night he back was born on black and roaring waves that ran or leagues unlit and foundered shores that drowned before the days began until he heard on strands of pearl where ends the world the music long wherever foaming billows roll the yellow gold and jewels wan he saw the mountain silent rise where twilight lies upon the knees of valinor and eldamar beheld afar beyond the seas a wanderer escaped from night to haven white he came at last to elven home the green and fair where keen the air where pale as glass beneath the hill of ilmarin a glimmer in a valley sheer the lamplit towers of tyrion are mirrored in the shadow mirror okay interesting things that happen with the uh uh with the 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 rhythm with the with the enjambment of the lines here it's one of the things we've been tracking here so in stanza 3 and in stanza 4 the uh the enjambment of the lines gets funky right as soon as the winds kick up right the first time to push him back the second time uh to draw him in um but um yeah yeah the uh the here we get most of it is regular but there are a couple exceptions, but these exceptions are of a different sort, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Ambrosius, I too have to read poetry much more slowly in order to absorb even the surface level meaning the first time. This is one reason why, for me, um, poetry is one of the only things that I can't just listen to in audio form, um, because I can't go back and re, re I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I can listen to it and then listen to it again and then listen to it again. Um, but in order to really kind of like pause and linger line by line and sort of think it through, uh, you know, sit down and say, okay, hang on a second. What's the syntax? Um, 
uh, even I find it, I'm, I'm a pretty extreme audiophile and even I find it, uh, uh, kind of necessary to, uh, to use my eyes there. Um, but absolutely I win Dillian. I have to read it aloud actually to hear it. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so again, starting at the beginning. Through ever night he back was born on black and roaring waves that ran or leagues unlit and foundered shores that drowned before the days began. Let's just pause there. It's our first piece of punctuation, but notice it's only a comma. Our sentence is still ongoing, right? Our independent clause is still moving along, so we'll have to come back to that. But just that first quatrain. He's back, he's born back through Evernight, which I do think is connected to the night of naught that we got before, right? This, remember the starless skies and everything? He comes back into that darkness from which he was ejected before, right? But now he's born back on black and roaring waves that ran or leagues unlit. So now, where again, in that same place where he was, uh, got the winds of wrath against him, he is being born on black and roaring waves, right? Carried on these waves. Okay, one little crossover thing. Those of you who are in the Mythgard Academy class too, you recognize that image? Does this make you think of anybody? Uh, born on black and roaring waves that ran or leagues unlit and foundered shores that drowned before the days began. Make you think of anybody there? Um, uh, for those of you who have been joining me in my Sauron defeated, uh, 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 sessions, our discussion of Sauron defeated in the Mythgard Academy. Um, that is, uh, very close to, yeah, exactly. Redux of the wicked wave, Tarlonio. Um, yeah, this is Numenorean imagery, or at least this is the uh, very similar language to how he describes the black wave, especially the black waves, uh, which bear the ships up and off towards Middle Earth with the wind of wrath behind them, of course, uh, from Atlantis. Excuse me, Numenor. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's kind of interesting here, right? Again, that we're seeing now he's being drawn in instead of pushed back. And obviously this is pre-Numenor, right? So it's not actually a Numenorean reference. Um, though again, we have foundered shores, so it's kind of hard not to think about it, uh, Numenor, but it's not, it's not there yet. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. This is more like anti-Numenor, Tim. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like the opposite. Uh, through Evernight he back was born on black and roaring waves that ran or leagues unlit and foundered shores. So leagues unlit and foundered shores. This is all again syntax again. Um, through Evernight he back was born. Right, that's the subject. He is the subject of the sentence. Uh, was born is the verb. So he is being carried. That's the subject of the, that's the action of this sentence. He is being carried. Where? Through Evernight. Back through Evernight. Right? Where is he being born? He is, or how is he being born? He is being born on black and roaring waves. Great. Oh, those waves. Where are they running? Right? Uh, the waves. Which waves is he being born back on? The ones that ran or leagues unlit and foundered shores. Or leagues unlit. Okay, so it's it, they're running over unlit leagues. So we got miles and miles of darkness right through every night, through the night of naught. 
and foundered shores that drowned before the days began. So there's sunken shores there, right? We don't know anything about this. He is passing over lands that have sunk below the sea in times before days began, before the measure of time as we know it, right? But back in those days, there used to be shores here. There used to be islands or whatever, and they've now sunk below the sea. So the, the, the idea of him crossing over ancient places, again, where seldom mortal goes, we already got, right? Um, but over this, like, historical land, right? Um, which back before days, this is how, uh, this, he's like going backwards in time, in a sense, not exactly backwards in time. Um, uh, but crossing over this land, which has known no, nobody has sailed over this. No, no other person has been here since these islands sank below, you know, these lands sank below the sea before the days began, right? Um, so yes, presumably the only light source is the light on his brow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, until he heard on strands of pearl, where ends the world, the music long, Wherever foaming billows roll, the yellow, gold, and jewels won. Okay, more syntax. Let's figure out what this means. Until he heard on strands of pearl. So we're, this is all still the same sentence, right? That's still another adverbial phrase. Until he heard is still like he back was born. When is he born back? He is born back until... So this is, this is, we're, we're, we're being told when the bearing back is, uh, is ending, right? Born back until he heard on strands of pearl, where ends the world, the music long, wherever, ever foaming billows roll, the yellow gold and jewels won. Okay, hang on a second. What's going on there? Until he heard on strands of pearl, where ends the world, the music long. Okay, hang on. Uh, where ends the world? Where ends the world modifies he heard on strands of pearl where ends the world. So on the strands, right? Yes, yes. Where ends the world connects to strands of pearl. Yes, exactly. The strands of pearl, that's where the world ends. What about the music long? That's the direct object of he heard. Until he heard the music long, you know, uh, the music on strands of pearl, where ends the world? You see? Um, yes. Yes, that's where the long music is. And why is it long? Yes, because it's the crashing of waves. Exactly. The music never ends. Uh, and it would, of course, sound presumably fairly musical to somebody who is being conveyed across this and who's been at sea for as long as Arendel has uh, and under such rather extraordinary circumstances as he has been. So he hears the music long, the music that's on Strands of Pearl, where ends the world, 
wherever foaming billows roll the yellow gold and jewels wan. So the strands of pearl, which strands of pearl are those? Uh, you know, the ones where the, where the, where, where the world ends. You know, the ones where the ever foaming billows roll the yellow gold and the jewels wan. Yeah, that, those, those ones. So rolling, um, Roll, sorry. Wherever foaming billows roll. So yellow gold and jewels are being rolled by the ever foaming billows because they're strewn on the shore, right? Because it's just strands of pearl and there's apparently gold and also wan jewels there as well, right? That's the music long that he hears. He hears... On strands of pearl where ends the world, the music long, wherever foaming billows roll the yellow gold and jewels wan. Yes. Now, I'm not quite sure how wan is to be understood, Ambrosius. It's a great question. And yes, Simon's thinking the same thing. It's not an adjective we typically see to describe jewels. Um, I think it does mean pale jewels. I agree that one is often used sort of negatively, right? Um, uh, that is, you know, to say that, you know, it's sort of uh, sickly, Ambrosius, as you say. Um, yes, yes. Um, Simon, that is interesting. Is it possibly because he's got the Silmaril on his brow, so in the light of the Silmaril, the other jewels are one in comparison? Possibly Mad Violinist was thinking the same thing. Um, very, uh, very possibly. Very possibly. Um, yeah, Iwendillian, you should be thinking about, um, uh, waves on a, on a, on a stony beach where the surf is, is rolling the rocks all against each other, right? Um, except instead of, you know, pebbles. Uh, the pebbles that it's rolling together are pearls and gold and jewels. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, this is definitely not a barefoot beach. Probably not. No, no, I don't think this would be a good barefoot beach. Um, yeah, um, yeah, Bricktails suggests that one means not glittering or gleaming. Um, yeah, yeah, um, probably not. I mean, they, well, I mean, I don't even know. Are the jewels uncut? I think they are cut. Wouldn't they, wouldn't he just call them gems if they were uncut? I mean, we know that the Noldor, again, if we allow ourselves to remember the Silmarillion for a second, we know that the Noldor strew, uh, gems on the beach, but did they cut them first? I think they might have done. But in any case, the word is jewels. And jewel, you don't find jewels in the earth uncut and raw. You find gems, right? Um, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting, Mad Violinist, to remember, you know, thinking about what light there is here. Um, 
Remember that back in stanza three, we were told that he's looking for the shining shore, right? He's seeking the light and the shining shore. Um, he's not found a shining shore, it would seem. That is, we're given no cues about the light, are we? No. We get, we're getting all oral imagery about the music, right? The rolling of the billows on the yellow gold and the wan jewels and the strands of pearl. He's hearing this. Um, but we're not sure what he's seeing. I mean, again, the only thing, the, the emphasis in the beginning of that sentence there, of course, is the darkness, the black and roaring waves, the leagues unlit, right? The, the shores beneath the sea that you can't see, right? But somehow we know they're there, apparently. Um, so yeah, I, I think, um, if you think about, um, if you think about the jewels, Imagining, imagine like a beach in the, in, in the dark, right? Um, and if you have a light, say, oh, I don't know, on your, on your brow, right? Um, something that is reflective, like a jewel, right? On the shore might kind of glint back at you sort of wanly, right? But you're not going to be able to really tell from a distance. Um, anyway. It might be shining. It might have, uh, is there starlight? We're not told if there is. Um, and that's, um, and that's interesting. Well, we're gonna get it, Fourth Dauntless. You're right. But we haven't yet. Um, in the next couple lines, we're going to, we're going to see it. Um, but we, we won't, uh, know anything about that yet. So I get, my point is that, it was called the shining shore, nor light he sought. Light is what he was seeking. He was seeking light in a shining shore. But the shore is not shining. The jewel, I mean, it's full of gold and pearls and jewels, and that's awful nice, but they're one, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not, there's nothing in that first sentence to suggest a shining shore. Or light, indeed, other than the light that he himself is bringing through the darkness. Now, um... He saw the mountain's silent rise where twilight lies upon the knees of Valinor, and Eldamar beheld afar beyond the seas. Short sentence, right? And notice we get another sentence that is exactly one quatrain long again, in the middle of this now, where the enjambment was starting to come and the quatrains were getting mashed together. In the previous two stanzas, here we have a clean uh, quatrain. He saw the mountain's silent rise where twilight lies upon the knees of Valinor and Eldamar beheld afar beyond the seas. But we do get that comma in the middle of the line, right? Um, of Valinor and Eldamar beheld afar beyond the seas. Hey, somebody do a quick search for me if you have an e-text. Have we gotten the word Valinor yet? Is this our first how many times have we heard of Valinor? I mean, the, the word Valinor. Has it appeared in the Fellowship of the Ring yet? And how about Eldamar? Have we got any, I'm pretty sure we haven't gotten Eldamar. I can't remember 100% for sure if we haven't gotten Valinor yet. Yeah, so the twilight here belongs bond, I agree, is a new light source other than the Silmaril. The first time we've gotten any reference to any light source since the Silmaril, right? 
and since he's been passing through Evernight here. Um, he saw the mountain's silent rise. Okay, first mention of Valinor according to the index. Okay. That's good. So, okay, it is the first time. Great. Excellent. JJ and Pontine confirmed that. So, why the comma? What's the effect of the comma? Good. First mention of both. I thought so. You see the function of the comma? Let me, let me read it without the comma, and I think you can hear the difference. He saw the mountain's silent rise where twilight lies upon the knees of Valinor and Eldamar beheld afar beyond the seas. We've gotten a lot of proper nouns that we didn't know before. And right now, again, we're new readers, right? We've just picked, it's 19, you know, 1954, and we've just picked up the Fellowship of the Ring. We don't know any of these nouns, right? I mean, so Valinor and Eldamar are for us in exactly the same category as Tarmanel, as, um, well, Narrow Ice is a little bit different, as uh, Arvernian and Nimbrathil, right? Same, what's the difference? Just a name that we uh, uh, have never heard before, right? This stops us here, right? That line doesn't just roll over us in the same way because he makes us pause after Valinor. It's pretty clear that it's a big deal, right? He saw the mountain's silent rise where twilight lies upon the knees of Valinor and Eldamar beheld afar across beyond the seas. So notice Eldamar is beheld afar beyond the seas. So we're told the relationship between Valinor and Eldamar, right? He sees Eldamar afar, beyond the seas, right? So he's in Valinor, and Eldamar is over there. So he's look, looking back out to see he can see Eldamar. He must have just passed it, right? Yes, exactly, Mad Violinist. It's, it's distinct from Valinor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yes, he saw the mountain's silent rise where twilight lies upon the knees of Valinor. And Eldamar beheld afar beyond the seas. He also saw that. So he's seeing two things. He sees the mountain, and he sees Eldamar beheld afar beyond the seas. Yeah. Now, agreed, we don't know what Eldamar is, but we know that it's distinct from Valinor. And maybe, if we're paying super close attention, we might even already have an inkling of what Eldamar means. Right, because we've seen the ELDA beginning of words before. Um, but even if we're not paying that close attention, um, we still know at least that it's important and it's something different. And he's going to give it to us in English in just a couple lines. So if we are paying attention, we will see that confirmed. But, um, uh, but yeah, good. JJ, exactly. Without the comma, they're likened, they're lumped together. With the comma, they're distinct. Also, again, it, it's an important syntactical cue, right? Um, without the comma, it's upon the knees of Valinor and Eldamar, right? Those two become the compound object of the preposition, of, right? Um, with the comma, it makes Eldamar 
the and now links it back to the other direct object. He sees two things, right? The mountain and Eldemar. Um, and good, I agree. The capitalization of mountain uh, does suggest that um, it's um, it's obviously important. Um, Bricktail says, would original readers be thinking Mount Olympus here? Possibly so. And if so, not a totally irrelevant thought, right? I mean, if they're thinking of uh, the mountain, uh, if they have any kind of association with, like, the mountain of the gods, they're not going to be wholly wrong, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, exactly, yes. And links that, well, yes, it links the clauses rather than the words. Yes, exactly, with the comma. A wanderer escaped from night to Haven White he came at last, to Elven home the green and fair, where keen the air, where pale as glass, beneath the hill of Ilmarin, a glimmer in a valley sheer, the lamplit towers of Tyrion are mirrored in the shadow mirror. Okay. Let's do this again. Yeah, Bricktails, I agree. There are lots of possible associations, right? Um, if you're into Greek mythology, you might think of Mount Olympus. Uh, if you're, uh, if you're into, to the Bible, right? You might think there might be some other mountains like Mount Zion or something like that that you might be thinking of. If you're into Dante, you might be thinking about Mount Purgatory. Um, absolutely. If you're into Narnia, you might think of Aslan's country. Uh, there are all kinds of, uh, mountains and none of those mountains is like totally wrong, right? Uh, to, uh, kind of associate here. Um, but, uh, anyway, okay. A wanderer escaped from night to Haven White. He came at last. So he has escaped from night and he comes at last to Haven, to a white Haven. Where? To Elvenholm, the green and fair, where keen the air, where pale as glass beneath the hill of Ilmarin, a glimmer in a valley sheer, the lamplit towers of Tyrion are mirrored in the shadow mirror. I really love these lines, um, but I never understood them. Um, these are, uh, that is, those last four lines in particular. Beneath the hill of Ilmarin, a glimmer in a valley sheer, the lamplit towers of Tyrion are mirrored in the shadow mirror. I don't know where Ilmarin is, I don't know what Tyrion is, and I don't know what the shadow mirror is, but I love the sound of these lines, right? Um, it's one of the things, one of the ways in which I feel that Tolkien really effectively deploys the richness of the rhyme scheme that he's been using all the way through, right? It makes these names feel right, like they have a meaning. I don't know what the meaning is, right? But they have a meaning. It's clear. Um, and uh, to some of it, we can guess. It is true that Elvenholm um, uh, is uh, uh, the first proper noun. Wait, who is uh, who is talking about the proper name? Um, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bricktails was saying, uh, Elvenholm is at last a place name that has an obvious meaning, um, especially connected with Sam's elves sailing, sailing, sailing into the West. Yes, exactly. Good. Um, it absolutely does. Um, we don't know 
what the Hill of Ilmarin is, but we can get something of its quality from the rhyme, right? Beneath the Hill of Ilmarin, a glimmer in a valley sheer, the lamplit towers of Tyrion are mirrored in this shadow mirror. Um, glimmer and mirrored, glimmered and Tyrion, glimmer and Ilmarin. Uh, even the alliteration between towers and Tyrion gives us a kind of clue, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of fun because, of course, the word Tyrion means tower. <laughs> In fact, like that's a translation of the name Tyrion. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, but he just connects them with the alliteration there. Um, and so again, I, 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 you know, we were talking about Jabberwocky earlier, right? If you remember the Jabberwocky poem in Through the Looking Glass, you may remember, I, and I've always, it's one of my favorite uh, lines in all of that book. Um, after Alice reads the Jabberwocky poem, she is sort of reflecting on the fact that she doesn't understand most of the words, right? And she, what she says about it is, it seems to fill my head with ideas, but I don't know quite what they are, right? Um, that she, she can't identify the ideas, but it's not senseless, right? It fills her head with ideas, but she doesn't know what they are. And I, I feel the same way here with the way the proper nouns are being deployed and the way that, um, notice that the, um, the way that these internal rhymes work, we have this kind of echoing. The word mirrored is literally the rhyme, right? The lamplit towers of Tyrion were mirrored in the shadow mirror. Um, the way that Ilmarin and a glimmer, Tyrion and mirrored in, are paired together. It conveys the sense of this scene um, without our having to know what that is. We know that Tyrion is apparently a city with towers, because there's more than one tower. It's not just a single tower. It's a city, right, with many towers. Uh, we don't know exactly what the Shadow Mirror is, though the sea that he has been coming across, which has been through Evernight, right, with black waves, presumably is something like that. So now we are getting what we weren't getting before. The first thing that that comes to him out of the darkness that he's been traveling through is the sound, the music, right? The long music of the billows rolling on the strands of pearl where ends the world, right? And then he sees the, twi the, the mountain silently rising where twilight lies upon the knees of Valinor. Um, as if the whole land are, is just the knees of the mountain, right? Rising up out of the twilight. And he beholds Eldemar, afar beyond the seas, right? And then he comes at last to the haven white. He sees color, right? Elven home, the green and fair. He gets more sensory input, right? We're keen the air. Now we're getting like smell, right? We're keen the air. We're pale as glass beneath the hill of Ilmarin, a glimmer in a valley sheer. The lamplit towers of Tyrion are mirrored in the shadow mirror. This sense of lights reflect, you know, uh, uh, pale lights reflecting, um, pale as glass is a really interesting simile there, where pale as glass 
beneath the hill of Ilmarin, a glimmer in a valley sheer, the lamplit towers of Tyrion are mirrored on the shadow mirror. What is pale as glass exactly? What does pale as glass modify? I think it modifies towers. That is, it's that pale as glass. It's the reflection, Edith, exactly. Yes, it's the reflection. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, the lamplit towers of Tyrion are pale as glass. They're, those, the lamplit towers of Tyrion, pale as glass, are mirrored in the on the shadow mirror. Yes, yes, exactly. And of course, glass is a really interesting comparison because what does the word glass mean? Anybody know what the word glass means? Clarification. Does anybody know what the word glass means to the cool kids? Namely, the cool kids who lived before 1500? Not modern people. If you're in the 15th century and back, what does the word glass mean? Anybody know? If you're reading Shakespeare... And Shakespeare uses the word glass. What's he referring to? A mirror, Tim. Absolutely. A glass is a mirror. That's what it means. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, glass means mirror. So um, that's why it's a really interesting simile. We're pale as glass. Now, um, what exactly does he mean? by that, right? Where pale as glass beneath the hill of Ilmarin, a glimmer in a valley sheer, the lamplit towers of Tyrion are mirrored in the shadow mirror. That the lamplit towers of Tyrion, which are pale as glass, are mirrored in the shadow mirror. Um, yeah, no, we're not seeing through a glass darkly. We're seeing through a glass palely, JJ, you see. Um, and of course, in the King James translation there, uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul is using the word, uh, like that King James is using the word glass in the way that the cool people use the word glass. It means he's seeing in a mirror. Um, uh, when you talk about seeing in a through a glass darkly, you're, you're seeing in a cloudy mirror. You're seeing a reflection that's hard to make out because you're looking at a, uh, bad mirror. Okay. A cloudy mirror. Not a clear one. Anyway. So, but you see the thing that he sets up that is so cool there at the end? The lamplit towers of Tyrion are pale as glass, right? So what are they like? They're like a mirror. And what is happening? They are in turn being mirrored in the shadow mirror. So he's not repeated the word, right? He does it glass the first time and mirror the second time, right? Um... So this sense of the lamplit towers of Tyrion, which themselves are pale as glass, they look like a mirror, right? And they are in turn mirrored in the shadow mirror. So that, that sense of like the depth of, um, yes, like mirror images extending forever into themselves, kind of like that. Yes. Like this sense of, um, uh, trying to capture the way that the, this whole valley is glimmering 
Right. Beneath the hill of Ilmarin, a glimmer in a valley sheer, the lamplit towers of Tyrion are mirrored in the shadow mirror. Um, this is what he's seeing from a distance, right? The, the reflection of the one, which looks like a reflection of the other. Both of them are mirroring each, you know, you can, it's almost like you can see the sea, the shadow mirror itself mirrored in, uh, the, mirrored in the towers, right? Um, I think that the way that this conveys the glimmering, remember also the way that the strands were being described before we could even see them, when we could only hear them, right? Uh, the long music, the rolling of the billows, which are ever foaming. So we notice the, the, the sort of the continuous emphasis on the perpetual nature, right? The repeated and, and unceasing nature of this music, right? Um, on strands of pearl, the yellow gold and jewels wan, um, all being rolled around by the ever foaming billows. Uh, again, this sense of, uh, so the first thing we hear is this continuous music and the particular quality of the music by which you can just kind of tell that these are jewels and gold and pearls that are being rolled around, uh, by the billows, right? And then when we pass from that to the, to the visual sight, right, we see this, uh, this continuous, this continually reflected glimmering, right? Um, I think it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool. Um, the green and fair where keen the air. And again, the, uh, the rhyme there really links those two things together. The first one being the visual image and the second one being the, well, olfactory image, right? The smelling image. Um, and how those are paired by the rhyme. Elven home, the green and fair, where keen the air. Um, yes, Bruinier, this should bring to mind the stars mirrored on Gilgalad's shield. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the way that uh, it's not just that his shield has stars painted on it, right? That's not how we're um, invited to think of it. Um, we imagine the stars above and the stars below. You know, there's like a, it's like a transaction, right? It's like a connection between uh, Gilgalad and the stars, right? Um yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I see that, that same kind of thing here, uh, with the, the, the sort of connection, uh, between Tyrion and its reflection. Um, who is mirroring whom exactly, right? Um, yeah, good, good. Okay. Well, I think we had a lot, a lot of wrestling with syntax here tonight, but that's that's okay. I mean, that's uh, that's important. Um, I know it might sometimes. I think people feel like this kind of wrestling with syntax kind of ruins the magic of poetry, right? I think a lot of people who like poetry. It's, it's kind of hard. I know that I, whenever I do this kind of thing, I'm sort of running a risk, right? Because if you're not interested in the poem, I'm, I'm, I sort of, um, if you're not interested in the poetry, I'm sort of presuming upon your already strained patience, uh, by taking this much time. And if you are interested in the poetry, I run the risk of, uh, you hating it, <laughs> right? Because we're, um, I'm, uh, uh, you know, sort of, uh, 
uh, dissecting, to use that word, which is one of my pet peeves, um, you know, a poem which is, you know, should be tasted for its beauty, right, rather than anatomized. Um, but it's super important because it's really imp- – because without doing it, without really sitting down and looking at the syntax, you can't even understand actually what's happening in the poem. That's always the first thing you got to do, figure out what's happening. And when you do, you can begin to see – as we were, you know, sort of looking at before, why do we get this convoluted thing, right? I think as, uh, I think it was, uh, Mad Violinist was suggesting before the fact that distressed is separated so much from boat, which seems to be what it modifies, um, is like an expression of the wild tumultuous thing, right? I mean, it's, uh, the storm is so strong, uh, the, the winds are so powerful that they've blown the boat all the way, you know, they've blown the adjective completely several lines away from the noun, right? Um, that's, it's kind of one of the ways in which you can see the syntax operating there. The way that these adverbial, uh, 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 phrases and clauses are kind of piled on each other surrounding the verb, uh, before and, a- you know, if both for and aft there, uh, is, um, is really, is really fun. So you can, again, once you, once you've identified the syntax and figured it out, you can first make sure you're not making, uh, silly mistakes, which is easy, easy to make. I mean, you, sometimes if you don't stop and, and think about it carefully, you won't even know for sure what the subject of the sentence is. Like, well, what, what are we even talking about? Right. Um, but then again, once you've done it, then you can sort of more fully appreciate the, the, the magic of how, of how the words all go together. Um, so, uh, anyway, all right, we shall care. We've arrived at Elven home, right? We're, at, we're, we're by the lamplit towers of Tyrion and the, uh, uh, the strands of pearl where ends the world. Uh, so that seems like a, a reasonable place to stop. Uh, we shall continue with the adventures of Arendel. Can I also confess something? Another reason why, apart from the fact that I love talking about poetry, and this is one of my favorite of Tolkien, Tolkien's poems, one of the other reasons that I enjoy spending more time on this poem, Tolkien never wrote the story of Eärendil, right? This poem is kind of the most we ever get. There are only two versions of the story of Eärendil that, that, that Tolkien ever wrote. One is the pretty bare prose account that gets put into the published Silmarillion, right? Just a, a kind of a brief summary. Um, the other is this poem. Um, the, in a, in a pretty significant way, this poem is the longest, greatest, most powerful version of the Arendil myth that Tolkien ever, ever wrote in his entire life, even though the entire Middle Earth story began with the Arendil myth, and way back in the Book of Lost Tales period, when he was first writing these stories down, he was planning a massive story. He was planning a version of the Arendil story, which was literally seven times longer than the story of Barad and Luthien or Turin Turinbar. Like that's how much, that's how big it was going to be, right? Everything it was like everything else in the Silmarillion was like the warm-up act, right? It was just the, it was just the opening band to the Arendil myth, which was going to be the big show, right? And then he never wrote it. He never finished it then, and he never came back to it, and he never, uh, ever wrote it and did it any kind of justice. This poem might be 
the best, like the, the, the most justice he ever does to the A. Arendel myth. So it's totally worth lingering over for a few weeks. Um, Oh, I know, Ambrosius. It is heartbreaking thinking about what we don't have. Um, and yeah, the A. Arendel myth is certainly the great untold story. Um, uh, not that it gets utterly untold again. We get outlines, but, um, the story that he never really wrote. Um, yeah, exactly. So we should thank Bilbo for it then. And this is another reason why when we go back and we look at the earlier versions of this poem, as we're going to do afterwards, um, it's one of the really cool things because you can see how uh, not only how this story goes from Errantry to this poem, like makes the massive leap, as we'll see from its original version to this version, but you will even see in a sense how the A. Arendel story itself grows and develops, which is really fun. Um, Oh man, Bruinier, I totally agree. Boy, if only Christopher Tolkien would find like a box that he'd never found before that contains the voyages of Arendel. Boy, that would be something. But uh yeah, yeah, I uh I don't think that that's gonna much happen. Um Brick Tales, yeah, it is kind of like the medievals getting their Plato through quotes and other authors. Yeah, I mean they only had the Timaeus uh mostly. Um uh, a couple other fragments too, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, they didn't have much Plato. So yeah, a lot of Plato that they're, qu- and Homer, frankly, right? Uh, I mean, they had a prose synopsis of Homer, but they didn't have Homer. They didn't have poetic Homer. Um, uh, they, uh, yeah, yeah. So exactly. It's just like all those references to Homer, uh, in the Middle Ages from people who'd never read him, uh, because they didn't have Greek and they didn't, so they, so they didn't have it. Um, yeah. Oh, don't worry. We'll get to the Dumbledores. Uh, that, that, that'll happen. That'll happen. Um, cool. All right. Field trip time. So I'm going to, uh, say thanks to those of you who've been joining me on Twitter. Uh, and we're going to switch over entirely to Twitch, our channel at twitch.tv slash signumu. Uh, so thanks everybody there. Okay, there we go. And it's field trip time. All right. Okay. Yeah. So where was the place we were thinking of looking today? Sarnur, yeah. Yeah. Sarnur, okay. Yeah, so, so that, that's, that's that what I'm thinking. Like, what, level 50, level 40? I forget what it is. I think it's 40 ish, is if I'm remembering correctly. Okay. Just, yeah. Just a shout out to Benny Lowe. He's coming with us. That's true. Yeah. So, um, we are going to, we're, we're going, so we're going in a starter area theoretically, but, um, it, we're going to the dangerous bit. So. Yeah. Anyone who stumbled on it by accident knows how much fun that was. I did that. I definitely did yeah. that. Oh, I wonder what those dwarves are doing. Oh, they're attacking me. I kind of, uh, yeah, I tried to, I, I boldly tried to solo it, but as I was doing so in a, with a rune keeper, it really didn't go well. All right. All right. So let's, I think we're going to, even though we're beginning to get towards the Thornsgate side of things, probably still easiest for us to go from, from Kellandim because I'd rather go back over terrain that we have crossed. Yes. 
I'm, closest to the Nog Log stable? I think it is. Yeah, for folks who are getting to it from other places. Or from Gondaman. I mean, it's it's not far past Gondaman. Sure. All right. Okay, so, um, Valora, you weren't able to be here last week because you were sick yeah. last week, right? Yes, for Hackweed. I lost my voice. Yeah, oh, that's really bad. I'm, uh, uh, I always, usually at least once per winter, I lose my voice. Fortunately, I don't have seasonal allergies, so that doesn't get to me that way, but. What's it like? It's tough. Yeah, I, I'm like the only one in my family with no allergies, so, you know, it's, uh, I don't take it for granted. Used to, but I don't anymore. Let's see, where are we going? Kellandim, that's where we're going. Yeah. Anyway, so I'll give you a brief recap of what we discovered last time. Okay. So we were doing mostly dwarf historical uh, inquiries, just as we were identifying the different archaeological periods of um, the uh, elves and the elvish architecture down here. Uh, so we were doing a very similar thing with um, the uh, a very similar thing with the dwarvish architecture up north. But of course, the difference is where the elvish periods down here, like, you know, we had to, we had nothing but speculation to go on as far as like what the demarcations were. In the Elvish, you know, the different Elvish epics. So in the north, we have more, right? Because we know when Thorin's people arrived, and we know, uh, and the, so the the two the, the, we were looking at basically three, or rather, not looking, not thinking the architecture first, but thinking first of what we know of the history of the Dwarvish occupation of this era. We were thinking of essentially three different historical eras. The first being what I called the, you know, the, 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 the Dowerhand dynasty, right? The time from back in the first age, because we're told that this is the ancestral home of the Dowerhands from back in the day, right? Yes. So back in the first age, you know, when we had Belagost and Nogrod, uh, all in, you know, in, 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 in full flower there up further north in the Blue Mountains, uh, way down here in the south, which is a little outside the range of um, the Silmarillion material, geographically, I mean, you know, where the where the, the action was all happening. Yeah, things came from here. They didn't happen here. Exactly, exactly. So we had the Dower Hands ruling down here. So, so the first thing, you know, that we could potentially look for, anything that looks like super, super ancient, uh, that appears to be dwarvish, is almost certainly dower hand and probably comes from that time. And of course, anything that looks super modern and recent is likely to be long beard, uh, construction, um, uh, from the, from the, the, the era of Thorin's people. Um, but there's that era in the middle, right? Which, uh, we were looking at, which I was calling the post dower hand era, uh, which is when the dower hands are still here, but basically after the, uh, the, the betrayal of uh, Skorgrim, right? When uh, the kingship 
was sort of taken away from the dower hands and um although they um you know remain here the you know sort of the glory of the dower hands passed right um, and then, of course, the Longbeards show up and kind of take over their ancestral realm here. Things up a bit. <laughs> exactly. So when we were looking in that northern spot, way up to the north of Gondaman, un- nestled under the mountains there, it's mostly Longbeard construction. So uh, first I was going up there and I'm like, what the heck? Like, what are they even doing here? But we were looking and noticing that there were clearly two different um, architectural modes there. We could see uh, the Longbeard architecture. I'm tempted to uh, call it the, uh, the like, uh, well, I couldn't call it the Longobardi, uh, but like I'm tempted to call it the Longobardi uh, architectural uh, style. Because, um, of course, the Longbeards. <laughs> right. Well, it's uh, the, the, the kind of pun on the... Um, the the medieval European people the the Langobards, right? Oh, uh, wow. Is and those were super important to Tolkien. Like he had like lots of theories about the Langobards, and uh, they feature very prominently in especially the Lost Road, but still also in the Notion Club papers, um, as like being descendants of the Numenorians and stuff. So, uh, but anyway, whatever. Uh, that's kind of a, a fairly deep inside joke. The point is, if we look here at Gondaman, which we see you know on its rock here from a distance. Um, that's pure uh, Longbeard construction, right? But yes. in that ruin up in the north, we clearly saw older architecture, which was much more ornate. Um, looked looked dwarvish, but it was of a different style and very much older. Um, and so we were speculating that that was like the classic um, Dower from back in the in the high days in the Dowerhand Dynasty period. Uh, and that the Longbeards had come and basically just like, you know did their sort of imperialist thing. You know, they came in and, and tore down what probably were like much more, uh, uh, sort of intricate arches, uh, that might've been put up by the, uh, by the dower hands and put up their long beard stuff instead. Um, anyway, so we'll see if we see any of that. Uh, if we don't see any of that anytime again soon, I'll take you back and show you. Uh, more so we can see again. But okay, so now we wanted to go up to Sarnor because we we're looking at Sarnor from a distance. And if we go back to the map here, we can see that um, we had gotten as far as uh, here, basically. the uh, Yeah, the Treasure Field Base Camp is where we had come near to, and we were looking down at Sarnor. So I want to come down to Sarnor. We'll come back up to the to the treasure camp up there. Um, yeah, today's a good day to do Sarnor. <laughs> today's a good day to do Sarnor because we're on Landreval and we have lots of high levels here. So, um, all right. So, um, I think it's across from Noglon, So, yes. So there are two entries to it, right? This is the where the road diverges to go down to Gondaman, right? Uh-huh. Uh I don't know of another way to get into. Sarner, because sorry, I'm just looking the at the one, the other one's a high cliff. It's it's in the back part of the goblin encampment. So hmm, okay, well on the map there are two places where it says to Sarnur. One but of them I, is a sheer drop. <laughs> well, that's the express route to Sarnur, then I guess. I suppose. Okay. 
All right, so we're coming on here along the road. So now this road we were speculating, we've been speculating, was perhaps constructed by Thorin's people. It's possibly there was a road. It's possible there was a road here before, but we suspect this road of being of Longbeard origin. And here we have these obviously Longbeard arches. I'm looking for any other sign. There's another one up on the mountain over there. Looking for any signs of any other ruins. Always got to be on the lookout for ruins. Super important. Any... We seem to got separated a little. Let's make sure we meet at Naglan before pressing ahead. Okay. Okay. I'm probably not going to go up into Naglan, but yeah, so the, the bridge south over the river is where we will pause and see. So these markers are... Also clearly Longbeard markers, which we've seen ever since Keladul. This is kind of fun. This, like, fishing spot. Yeah. The fishing the, supplier. The, the, yes, he's a teacher, too, I think. I'm not positive, I think. Or maybe he was... I don't know, I've got to think that, you know... The fishing supplier is not like why this stone construction was built. Uh, yeah, no. Oh, he's got a lovely mounted fish on top. Yeah, I know. I, li I like the mounted fish. Yeah, I mean, it's clear it's been very emphatically repurposed, but uh, I can't imagine that when Thorin first came here, this was constructed for the sake of a a fishing platform, but who knows? You know, it's it's possible. It is newer. It's got that red jasper all over it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is very uh, no evidence of anything pre uh, pre Longbeard here. Maybe it was a toll. Um, yeah, maybe toll booth. Yeah, that uh, certainly seems possible. Manifest. This bridge is interesting. Yeah, it's, well, this is very similar to the one we had uh, in the Shire Bridge. Yes, but it's not the same. Hang on a second. Can we get down under it? Uh, I, think, I, think I, I think so. I think I've fallen down this bridge a couple of times. Yeah, I think it. I think it bears looking under it. Yeah. Oh wow! I haven't seen that before. Yeah. I thought this support looked weird. What a weird shape for... And it's got leaves down here. Yeah, look at this down here. See, it's got, like, Corinthian leaves. I wonder if it's the only thing that they left that the elves built. <laughs> well, see, now this was one of the things that we were noticing about that, um, about that Dowerhand ruin farther north. Um... And that's, um, the, the more intricate and even, uh, we were wondering, spe speculating or at least wondering if what we were seeing architecturally up there in what looked like stained glass and everything was actually evidence of collaboration between elves and dower hands back in the day, or the dower hand architecture being influenced by elves. Um, cause you know, first age, who knows what kind of contact they might've had, 
But see, I think the, the, this stone is obviously very different. I mean, you know, you, so you put them both in the frame and you can see how different not only the color of the stone, but the age of the stone is, right? Yeah. That does sound like dwarves too. They tear down everything else. They're like, ah, but that's a good piece of stone. That's right. Yeah, this 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 bridge will, this bridge will do right. So they'll keep the bridge. Um, but you can see even in the approach here, right, how these pillars here are not the same as the bridge itself. This the um, the cobbles, right, the stones on the bridge, the actual road as it goes across the bridge is the same, right. But um, but the bridge itself, the actual stonework of the bridge and the designs of the bridge, we don't see any of these these kinds of triangular patterns. Again, it's it's geometric, like we've come to expect from dwarvish architecture. But it's not uh, it's not the same kinds of patterns. We don't get the kind of knotwork that we see. Ooh, doesn't that look like runes over here on the upslope? Which is on the far right of my screen as I'm looking at it, but. Uh, on the side, out on the outside of the railing, and oh, I don't—it could just be scratches, but it almost looks like runes. Not neatly. Um, in fact, it looks like graffiti, yeah, frankly. Oh uh, well, there's triangles on the outside of the bridge. Yeah, no, I'm looking at the outside. Uh, so I'm looking from. Uh, camera is from the east, looking on the east side, on the upslope from the northern uh, side of the river. See so, now. directions. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm wanting to go to the, the other side. Of the ramp. Yep, they're on the other side too. Oh, oh ho! Oh, and I just saw something else. There's the Cairo. Yes, I saw the Cairo on the underside. Uh huh. Just like the other one. Yep. So yep, I think that the the Cairo, whatever the Cairo is meant to be in a Middle Earthian context, that's probably a dower hand symbol. Interesting idea. I'm yeah. Aslan. Yeah, well, I get that. I get that. I mean, again, I, I'm kind of, um, you know, I mean, I, I might have my own private theories about how the Cairo got there, but I uh, certainly, from within the context of uh, of the game world here, we have to, um, I think that we have to conclude that that is a dour handish symbol, which is yeah. kind of interesting. Okay, so we have an interesting then lead up, right? Because it's and this is the way to Sarnor, right? Am I remembering that correctly? That's correct. Okay, so the bridge across. So we've had all all Longbeard uh, architecture, and even from here, the town that we can see right across the way. The, uh, I'm blanking on its name. The one that begins with an M or N, Nog as you've said, Nogland. Yeah, Nogland. Uh, we can see it across the way there, and we'll look at it more closely at a later time uh, on on another week, perhaps. But that's clearly, I mean, we can see from here that it's Longbeard construction, right? And also, actually... Blue and the, the redstone. Yes, exactly, with the blue and the redstone. You can see equally well from here. Look at the difference from here. Look how obvious it is that the bridge is of, of from you know, from a different era. Doesn't match the town there at all. Okay. So, in the midst of all of this Longbeard construction, we have a Dowerhand bridge, which I'm going to guess comes from, I mean, it's hard to say because I don't think we have any evidence of anything that comes from, oh man. Oh, we take the wrong way? No, we took the wrong way. This is the, en- this is the other entrance you can't get in. Yeah, but... We just have to go back and take the stairs, that's all. Okay, yeah, no problem. But, 
What is this? Okay. So the the Longbeards built this. They kept the bridge. They built this. In, ah, ooh, ooh, ooh. Look up there. Okay. See, yeah. So look up above the gate. Stained glass windows. The stained glass windows. That is the signature. That's what we were. That's the style that we were saying was dourhandish. Notice the difference in the stone. Notice the difference in the styling. You can barely see it because it's far away. Um, but look at the the much more sort of fine detail. Instead of like the super flat, smooth marbling uh, and everything, and like the big, like the knot work and the larger like rectangles and 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 triangles and diamonds that we get in the uh, uh, the long beard. See the uh, the smaller. Um, like detail work up there along the top fringe and around that. Ah, interesting. Okay. So that is, and we can see some on the far side too. So look over there, uh, up on the shoulder of the hill, we see another one too. So I think, I think that we're seeing here the same thing that we saw at the other ruin, namely the dower hands of old had their other, like they had a gate here. Like they, they had a wall here. You can see from what's up there on the shoulder and I can't quite see. Yes, you can on the other shoulder too. There's evidence of it on both sides of the gap, right? Cool. So the dow, so the, the yeah. yeah. So the long beards come in and they, so I don't know, like build over it. Right. Yes, it is like Brie. How you can see the you can see the old wall, right, and then you can see the places where the Arnorian wall has been put, like outside it, because they thought the original old wall insufficient, right? Uh, you know, not uh, not awesome uh, Numenorian construction, so they had to they had to add their own walls. So the the Longbeards have kind of taken this over and they've built it up. And they've put their own sort of masonry around it to make it a bigger and more imposing gate. But we can still see where the older and more intricately beautiful with stained glass and stuff, uh, dower hand structure was. Interesting. So it does we'll make... we come back here next week because this is still a low level area over here. We'll have to come back next week and get a good look at this area too. Yes. But now we can't get behind this gate? way and go up the stairs. Okay, going the other way. And up the stairs. Somewhere. Gosh, it's been so long since I played this level. Where are the stairs? And I don't think I ever did. Oh, man. I mean, I went into Th Sarnor enough to get killed several times, but I don't think yeah, I, know. I ever actually explored like, right it. Because I was soloing. I was always level 15 and just like, oh, I, I get it. It's on the other side. It's on the other side. On the other side of the bridge? Uh, no, it's, it's on, it's this side of the bank where we all are. And just keep going around to get to dwarven architecture on this side of the goblin poles. Aha, uh -huh. I see it over there. Yeah. That's oh, fun. great. Yeah, let's go check that out. Oops. Yeah. I have to, I have to go soon. Darn it. Yeah, I know. 
Sarnor is pretty much just one level maze, and the rest is all, I think, ice caves underneath it. Yeah. Well, Drat, here I wanted to get to Sarnor while we were on Landreval, and I'm not going to be able to. Oh, well. Well, let's look on at the outside. I got I got about five minutes. Um, uh, which way was it? So I'm looking at this arch through which the river is running. Yeah. So, again, the top and the it's, bottom? It's at the, it's at the very, very top near the boss fight. Okay. And then instead of going towards that gated entrance we saw earlier, we go in the other direction through the Dwarven Arches with all the stained glass windows over here. Dwarven Arches with stained glass windows. Must yep. see. It's must see Twitch TV. All right. Little goblin camp, little goblin tents. Oh, so these stairs, yeah? Yeah, all the way to the top of the stairs. Ooh, look at this column. So much to see. We will have this to... This part's low level, so we can come back. It's Sarnor we yeah. can't do again until we're on our landry. We'll have to come back. Yeah. We'll have to come back next time. Oh, man, these stairs are so cool. Yeah. Oh, One man. One place where dwarven stairs and elven stairs have a lot in common. Oh, look at this. You've got three layers here got the you can see right here at a glance how you've got the dower hand and the long beard and then the goblin stuff on top of it yep look at that door oh man it'll still be here next week oh this is awesome i love the doors dower hand doors are really cool as we were looking look at that door in the side of the tower it's just adorable what is not to love? And then we come up here. All right, we keep, here. keep going up. That's the big ugly totem pole. Goblin and totems. Oh, I see where the doubt, where the long beard architecture. Oh, and there we go. Look, more of the yep. stained glass. There it is. See yep. the intricacy and how at the top, it's it's almost like leaves along the top, right? How you see the the curly cues yep. and things. Yeah, oh I think man. It does blend to the idea of a collaboration. Exactly. Wrong way. Wrong way. This way. Oh, I know, but there's lots of stuff over here, too. Okay. And then up here. Yep. This is... Under oh, the gates. The lamps. Look at the lamps alone. Look at the lamps. Oh, man, the lamps. Oh, there's so much. Oh, and there's... Look at all of this. Wow. Oh, this is... We've not seen this much dower hand architecture anywhere. Oh, look at all this. Oh, wow. 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 Even the stuff that's fallen in gives us a lot of clues. Look at all the steel reinforcements on the stone that's collapsed. Oh, man. Ooh, look at the roofs. Yeah. Are those, like, shingles? I think they're shingles. That could be. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Well, we will take a closer look next time, and then maybe we'll wait to go into Sarnur. Um, we have plenty else that we can explore 
other places too. Oh man, that is awesome. Okay. All right. Well, I am excited about Sarnur then and excited to come back and look more closely through here. All right. Fantastic. Okay, cool. Well, I'd better run. Thanks everybody for joining me. This has been, uh, I, I didn't even expect to make the discovery about the bridge and this is even more beautiful than I had imagined. Oh man. Look at that. Okay. Sorry. All right. Thanks everybody. And I will see you guys next week. As, as usual, I pause to make sure that I'm speaking the truth. Yes, I will be here next week. Uh, so thanks everybody. Good night. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.